The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And today, we have got an awesome chat. I sat down with John Vallis today. We were actually, this was actually for his podcast, the Bitcoin Rapid Fire podcast. And uh, I always, it's always good hanging out with John. And we actually had a week ago, week and some change, um, we had a, essentially part one of today's episode where we talked about um, uh, a lot of things that were happening with the banking crisis. And, and in fact, I will have the link to it in the show notes. So if you want to watch the precursor to this, it's not totally necessary, but we do kind of like recover some of the things and kind of update what has been happening over the last week. But I think this is actually a decent follow-up to yesterday's Guys Take episode um, because John and I talk about, I mean, just all about kind of the spirit of Bitcoin and what Bitcoin means sort of as a consensus mechanism, what it means to change Bitcoin, and also a lot of the technical the technical things that are on the horizon, uh, like OpVault, and then also the things that have happened recently that have been really contentious, like ordinals and inscriptions, and what do they mean, and what what is it you know, projecting that back, like what does that mean for Taproot and SegWit and these changes that have happened in the past? And, um, you know, just like kind of a larger overview of what is Bitcoin? How does it relate to us as people? What's the, you know, the, the difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law uh, in the context of the code of Bitcoin? How do we, how do we be good custodians of this thing? And are we changing Bitcoin or is Bitcoin changing us? And we just get into a ton of really, really fun discussion. And as soon as we did, we, I mean, we went for two and a half hours on this one. And at the end of it, I was just immediately like, man, I think I feel like the Bitcoin Audible crew would really enjoy this because um, me and John just kind of went with it. Um, so uh, I asked him and he was very, very kind and generous in letting me publish this on my feed so I could have it here for you guys. So do not forget to subscribe. Check out John. If you're not following John Vallis, what what are you doing? So follow him. I'll have his Twitter. And uh, I'm I'm like 99% sure he's on those stir if I'm not mistaken. Um, but I'll have his uh, pub key uh, so that you can follow him up there. And a link to part one of this as well as his podcast so that you can check that out. But honestly, it was really great uh, getting to hang out with John again. Um I hadn't, and if if you listen to the previous, the part one of this um, show, I I feel like John and I haven't hung out for like a year or two, like a really long time. Um, so, uh, and hopefully I'll see him at Bitcoin 2023. Um, but um, yeah, it was really great hanging out, and we just had an awesome, awesome run with this conversation, and I think you guys are really, really going to enjoy it. So we're gonna jump right in. Really quick, I just want to thank our amazing sponsors. We have got CoinKite and the Cold Card. Don't forget the Cold Card Q1 is available for pre-order. This is the BlackBerry of, of, uh, 
uh, hardware wallets and it's amazing i am so stoked to have the larger screen the camera like it is going to basically be the most versatile wallet out there i definitely definitely you should check it out if you haven't yet um, and don't forget that if you're getting a cold card or anything else on the store, don't forget my code, Bitcoin Audible, 9% off. And if you're a Fold user like myself, a lot of times you can get gift cards with really good sats back too. So if you got the premium card and you're doing the Fold debit card and the sats back on everything in your life like myself, definitely check it out. And also just check out the Fold card. You can get 20,000 sats for free if you haven't signed up to just check out the free version the free version is not even free it's negative 20,000 sats you you get 20,000 sats go to my link bitcoinaudible.com slash fold it's right there in the show notes and then lastly swan bitcoin especially if lately investments and bonds I tell you what there's a lot of uncertainty in the financial world and it it's very very nice to be allocated to bitcoin and Swan now has the IRA, so you can get your retirement allocated to Bitcoin. And if you want to invest in generational wealth and in sound money for the future, the link is right in the show notes to check it out. With that, let's get into today's chat with John Vallis, and it's titled, The Spirit of Bitcoin. It's a we, thing. We, We've been granted permission now, I believe. We've been granted permission. That's yeah, good. Let me, That's good. Let me just I feel check. much better about it. I feel like I've pleased the I computer. I a good gods. word for you. Yeah. Thank you. You got the clear Thank from uh, the powers that be. Um, yeah. So regarding miners, uh, it's something I really want to, you know, just one of those things you like that um, Starship Troopers uh, gif, like I'm doing my part sort of thing. You know, like I, mm -hmm. and I want to tinker with it and I want to play around. So when I get settled, I think I will. But anyhow, um, we spoke. I, well, I, I will say real quick, I highly recommend it. It's not as difficult. It's not as much of a challenge as I thought. Like I even sat on my miners for like a month. I had them in a box and I didn't even use them. Um, I was just kind of like, I had the opportunity and I bought them. Um, but it's really, it's really kind of a magical moment when they come on. And especially if you're using them for heat, like it it keeps the house warm or whatever and you've got this like a little hum um it's a really fun project to customize but even if you're not if you're just like literally getting them plugging them in and turning them on it's it's like it's a very it's, it's like a magical it's like a magical song of hash that like just just eases like you into your first sleep bitcoin transaction there's just something yes, magic yes about it. it really is it really is magic <laughs> There's a, isn't there a company that came out recently that it's a full on space heater with my, that, that like hashes it's as an well? S9. Mm. Oh, 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 yeah. The heat bit, heat bit. I almost bought one of those actually. Um, I'm not sure if they, I mean, I feel like it's delivered. super gimmicky because like, yeah, you know, it's never gonna, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't imagine it would be able to be efficient in both ca cases, you know, both e either heating, or heating and hashing, but it's a cool idea. It won't and be. I, I would say that it won't be efficient in hashing. Yeah, but that I, from from what I am seeing, I have not seen any significant change in my utility. Um, and I am getting a significant amount of Bitcoin back from it. 
I'm I intend to do the the real math, like like real numbers on it to just kind of give like a concrete analysis. How could you not have seen a significant change? I mean, there they gotta be some of the you're adding because I'm not like, running my heat anymore. They replaced oh, see, my see, heat. And your yeah, heat yeah, yeah. is your dominant is mm -hmm. your dominant energy cost. Um uh heat and AC. Uh so um I do suspect that it will continue to go up because it's like a month delayed. So and I think the first month was probably like half the month I had the miners on. Mm -hmm. It's only been like two-ish months, three-ish months now. Um, and uh, and maybe I will see some sort of significant uptick, but I don't think it will at, at all counteract the Bitcoin that I've made off of it. Like, and I, and I mean the dollar value when I got it, not even the fact that it's you know, gone up 70% or 60% or something right, since then. Right. Um, and uh, which means that I think it would be economically feasible in a pretty wide range. Um, I, I think it's difficult with, if you're paying for the hash rate, I, I think it has to happen after it's commoditized. Um, but what you're essentially doing is you're dual purposing your creation of heat. Um, and, uh, I think you could actually massively decentralize mining by doing exactly that, by orienting mining around its use of heat and having the, basically an external positive, a positive externality of also getting a small trickle of Bitcoin and, you know, basically having a, a smart heater. <laughs> that you can like, you know, you can remote control and like all of these things, you kind of get all these features of like, oh, I've got a smart home, but then you're also participating in the Bitcoin network. And it means that your, your home node is mining. Like, I don't think it'll ever be like vastly popular, but if you, I, I'm, I'm legitimately considering sitting down and just seeing what the feasibility is of partnering with an AC company and giving them this layout and seeing if they want to take it and run with it of selling it as like a, you, you can we can do solar on your house and we can also do a smart heater that mines bitcoin um and i think those uh, companies exist see if it's I, a sellable oh I, I think they do too but i was just meaning specifically like in in my area i think it's oh, I see, very I very see. small yeah. that has a huge opportunity but yeah anyway, I, saw, sorry, I saw some no no it's fine I, I saw some company that does exactly that like they're doing the like use ASICs to heat your home as a service sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, I, I shouldn't, um, you know, disparage this, whatever you call it, the heat bit or, cause I don't know enough about it. Um, and I do, you know, it, I mean, I guess there's a few variables yet to be determined, but one, I love mm -hmm. all the tinkering that everyone's doing, you know, heating hot tubs, yeah. heating homes, you know, all that kind of stuff, heating greenhouses. Um, mm -hmm. and I mean, it's, you know, it, it, it seems logical enough that, where you have, well, if you can, if you can generate the, the end product that you're looking for, i.e. heat, whether it's for your home, greenhouse, hot tub, but as, but you generate what was previously an end product as a byproduct of something else, which is gaining sats from hashing, decentralizing mm -hmm. the network, supporting it, all that kind of stuff, then yeah, why not? You know, they, if, if there's such complementary economics at play there, then, you know, as you said, you you may not even have to care or want to support the Bitcoin network. It might just be a completely economic decision, you know, and that, yeah. that would be. Yeah. 
I, I think mean, there's... intuitively, it seems like that's the way it's going to go because Bitcoin just, mm -hmm. is just crazy like that. And it, it, it streamlines, it, it seems to have that effect of streamlining incentives and making things uh, more economically balanced in a, in a way or something mm -hmm. like that. But And, and I think the, one of the really big selling points is that the upfront cost is way less than a heating unit. Like I, I was, as I was saying, I don't think this was recorded or whatever, uh, it was before, but that to replace my unit was going to be $6,000. Um, but I could heat the whole house with three S9s. They're like a 150 bucks a pop. Um, so if you were doing this as a company, you could sell it as a the the upfront, the the sunk cost of just getting the unit in is so much cheaper that even if it was energy less energy efficient and was just had a trickle of Bitcoin, you're still you've still got like an eight year runway before you're even hitting the cost of buying the larger heating unit like heat. If, if you really look into it, heat is literally the way that we create heat is just using an inefficient means of moving electricity from one place to a neck to the next, because elect the, the offloading of inefficient energy transmission is heat. You know, you just send it through something that's got a massive amount of resistance, but it's still conductive and it just fucking gets hot, but it's really inefficient. Like we don't really have a lot of great ways to produce heat. That's why just burning natural gas is actually more efficient, but it has the the cost of maybe accidentally pumping carbon monoxide into your house, like my case, um, which you don't want. That's a, that's a pretty bad externality um, if things go wrong. I guess in that but, case, uh, the amortization of the, like the S9s won't last for six or eight years, right? Maybe they'd last for a couple. Maybe. Full blast maybe. all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, still these guys, I think this is a, a Noctura fan. I got four of these guys. Um, these are actually for my computer, but um, you can get these for the Crypto Cloaks. Has the S9 space heater. Mm -hmm. Um, that you stick an S9 in it because you can just plug those into a normal outlet. You stick an S9 in it, and then you put uh, different fans in it. And I think you have to. I want to say that the volume that these things push because they're really quiet fans is not quite enough. Um, so you have to turn it on low power probably to make it. Or or get two of them, um, but uh, it's the next project I want to do. I actually want to have like a quiet space heater that is also mining Bitcoin in my studio, um, outside of the what's minor uh, central oh, heating and air. Can you um, imagine so, like you're you're in your living room and it's just a night you're reading a book or something and like you're you're warm and comfortable comfy <laughs> and you look at the the space heater and you're like not only are you making me warm and comfy and have giving me a great reading experience right now but I know you're also hashing fucking Bitcoin I know there's sat streaming into you right now KYC you just, sat yeah and you just look at it so fondly right you're like oh god I love you <laughs> it so feels cool. good it feels so good um. All right. Well, last time we, we spoke a week ago, I, I told you that uh, we were going to break into another topic, but I thought, you know, to do it justice, we didn't want to just squeeze it into five or 10 minutes. So that's mm -hmm. why uh, we're having a, a round two today. I don't know if it will require as long. We'll see. But before we do, I mean, any, any thoughts or any developments since we spoke on this whole banking crisis? The start of the week seems to be at least somewhat uneventful. No big news drops or or anything like that i think the it only was quiet but uh the fed is now unprofitable <laughs> well yeah but that was the case before too right where they weren't didn't they have a no, big... technically technically they had an inflow of capital because they're able to create 
what they get interest on. But now it's at Lynn Alden. I actually haven't read the piece, but I, I read a tweet thread by Nick Batia. Was it in the Bitcoin layer? It wasn't that one on tweet thread. I don't know. Um, somebody um, I've been keeping little notes on it and uh, meaning to go back to it. But um, and that's probably a piece I will read by Lynn Alden this week. But essentially, despite the fact that the Fed has a huge balance sheet, like that they're massively um, uh, indebted, essentially, like they they have a massive imbalance that they're constantly printing money and issuing liabilities and buying bonds, right? But they are actually they actually make a return. Like the member banks actually, quote unquote, own the Federal Reserve banks that create the Federal Reserve System. So it's a pseudo private entity, but it is literally and it's always paid out tiny dividends to all of its supposed like member banks because it like, quote unquote, makes money um, by, you know, working for government and major institutions to in, in selling liabilities. But now it's not doing that anymore. It's got li it, it's basically what, it's gone. It's gone negative. Um, just the scope of what they this this will be something that I'll cover that uh, it with Lynn Alden and the other pieces I'm going to read to clearly a lot of details to to work out as to exactly mm -hmm. why. Um, and uh, but I think it's got something to do with how they have essentially worked to backstop things. And then the fact that they've lost value on bonds because of the interest rate rise. I think it's an imbalance that's actually kind of similar to what is going on with SVB or what happened with SVB is that the value of these things have plummeted while they've tried to push up interest rates. So their attempt to curb inflation and then also having to expand their balance sheet, which are usually polar opposites, right? Is you, you raise interest rates to lower your balance sheet and you lower interest rates by expanding your balance sheet. And they're doing the opposite. They're, they're trying to do two two contradictory things at the same time mm -hmm. um and that somewhere in that play i'm not ex exactly sure what the price uh, co conflict is actually causing the the thing that's why i want to get into it on the show and like really kind of explore it um but somehow in the mix they've caused themselves a massive problem and despite the fact that they could print money and print liabilities, they are unprofitable as a banking institution, which is a little bit crazy to think about. Right. But, uh, um, yeah. And that just well, like kind of quietly happened. But one of the things that I saw in my interpretation of it was that uh, the Fed opened up swap lines to ECB, uh, mm -hmm. Bank of Japan, and other central banks to basically give them access to dollars because all those banks in all over the world are having the same issue that SVB had basically. They own a shit ton of treasuries. They're way underwater on them now. And that's yep. a massive loss, especially if they need to sell for liquidity reasons or whatever. And so, mm -hmm. and and those banks would be totally screwed uh, because they wouldn't have access to US dollars. And so the Fed opens these swap lines to these central banks. These central banks trickle it down to the the, the market banks, let's say. And um, you know, it's fixed in that way. And, be, and also, I believe... Um, we discussed this last time, but all the international banks that are holding treasuries on their balance sheet, they can now access those swap lines at par value of what they bought yes. those those treasuries for. Which yeah. again, like it, it just bears repeating how 
insane that is because I mean, because we we often we've we've had many conversations over the years about like, well, you know, is not a scenario of like the Fed and the Treasury and the government being between a rock and a hard place developing. In one hand, you have hyperinflation. The other hand, you have, you know, a huge amount of debt, you know, and crippling deflation or austerity or whatever. And like, which which way do you go? How do you how do you resolve this? And then, you know, most people are like, well, it's it's not resolvable. It's just kick the can down the road, you know, and hope it's hopefully it's somebody else's problem. And I mean, I, I think fundamentally, those are probably still the case. But what most people didn't have on their bingo card, probably they had money printing, they had more debt issuing, they had, but they didn't have just like complete uh, suspension or overriding of re market reality insofar as they can be like, oh, your house is worth 500,000, line through it. Now it's worth 1 million. It's like, but yeah. Is, doesn't the, same the market thing. determine these things? Like, no, we yeah. do now. So all yeah. those bonds, the the trillion, tens of trillions, and all that those bonds out in the world, oh, they're worth they're they're worth five trillion now. Nope, they're worth twenty trillion actually. And so you can borrow against that, and then money printer goes burr to provide liquidity for for those new loans. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, it's like what we can just make up new reality now. That's the space we're in. We can just scribble out a number and put another number on it, and that, and then you know, rinse and repeat. It's just it's. It's madness, you know. Uh, what what's really what's happening essentially is they're printing money in a different way, and they're trying to. They can't do it again the last the last way that they did it because now everybody knows that that was printing money, so they have to come up with some new mechanism every single time that sounds like a decent excuse, and every single time it's just a new excuse to do the same thing, and it's like a different instrument, and like and because of that, it's like innovative, you know. But if you go back to like a good analogy. Um, uh, I actually talked about this uh, in yesterday's Guys Take episode. Um, was uh, um, I used the example of like the bubble and the burst, uh, the bubble like a debt cycle, and used the analogy of like cars and keys. But we'll, for simplicity's sake, to not have to get into it, we'll just talk about like 2007. Housing prices were like way, way, way high, but it was because they were overinflated, right? It's because it wasn't a real market. Like we were in a debt bubble, we were in a mortgage bubble, and the real price was the 50% loss that happened the next year and the year after, right? That was the actually sustainable price. Well, imagine you have like a bunch of rich people that are now also bought all of these mortgages. And because the government said that like, it was the government mortgages, like they're like, let's say they're government houses. And like, these are really important people that are very, very rich. Well, if they lost 50% on their houses, like, oh, well, no, we'll give you an equity loan based on the 2007 price because you're too important to have to deal with reality. And what they've actually done is they've just propped up the false pricing that made everybody poor and just kept the rich in the, they've, they've basically socialized and guaranteed the return for the rich people who made a terrible investment decision. And when the people were supposed to get paid back for that, essentially, that the everybody who was having to deal with a higher housing uh, higher housing prices that were pushing them out of they make literally making people homeless. Um, well, now they've just guaranteed that um, and just said, fuck everybody else. Um, we just we have to deal with the banks and the important people and we have to make sure that they always get the money that they think that they are owed for making bad decisions, but believing that they were good decisions. Their belief overrides reality. Yeah, exactly. And so do you think this is this is kind of the capitulation moment where 
you know, money printer goes burr again, because as you say, that's effectively I mean, it is. That's what's happening. happening yeah. But they're yeah. still in an, in a, an environment where rates are high and, you know, probably going to maybe even we see another small increase. Uh, when is it this week? Uh, yeah, 25 basis points. I think it's this week, um, supposedly, or just we suspect it's 25 basis points because it's well, not that's, market, what, that's, what, just, I, that's what I mean. Powell wakes up on the wrong side of the bed, <laughs> but it's just, as you say, it's like usually they're in tandem, right? And now they're, they're opposing in some way. Is that just for the optics of it? You know, because Burr is happening. I think it's because they don't know what to do. They have, they have no, no idea what to do. Um, it's, but, but, it's, so you think it's, it's a shit show. It's a shit you, show you, either way. You, you think the people of the Fed are ignorant about, I mean, come on, like, I, I don't think it's, hard, it's ignorance it's hard for, so much as what, what's the what better option? Yeah. What option do they have? And they look, they're just getting pressures from every different direction. It's like, do we please the corrupt people who keep me in power? Do we please, do we please the public? that is going to demonize the absolute living crap out of me? Do we do we please the politicians that are going to spin a lie to get more power out of this and take more control over what the Federal Reserve is doing? Like, is it going to be Powell's centralized power that we're subject to? Or is it going to be the dumbass politicians centralized power? I mean, like, it's just it's just a game of who can like government is a giant PR firm. That's all it is. They can do whatever they want as long as they're the best at PR is spinning bullshit to keep their power, excuse me, to keep their power looking legitimate. How do they make sure that they look like the good guy and then they can do whatever the hell they want? Um, so it, it's, it's peak perception over reality. Um, the entire political apparatus is. And they are playing a perception game. Powell wants to look like we're fighting inflation and maybe they have a actual functional purpose at the underneath it they want to have like technical control too and there's a libor and so forth uh you know debacle going on underneath behind the scenes and they're trying to play that game at the same time they're trying to play a polar opposite game that requires them to make a different decision but the problem is that this cascades out of control so quickly because you're increasing the balance sheet at higher interest rates like it exacerbates each one whilst potentially trying to subdue one problem makes the other, the opposite problem, orders of magnitude worse. Because if you have to continue to issue debt and you have to continue to issue government bonds at a higher interest rate, when interest payments on government debt have greatly outsized the, like are just taken over the entire deficit and like a huge portion of the government revenue. And then you have to do this again, you have to reissue this debt at higher interest rate, which means they have more money coming out, which means you have to expand the balance sheet even faster just to keep like like you're having to print money while forcing yourself to print more money in order to have the, the mechanism to shrink the debt supply, which is going to shrink the money supply. Like, I mean, it's it's a it's a disaster of conflicting contra like contradictory courses of action. Um, and I think it's just they have no option. Everything, every path is a bad path because we've made a huge problem. We've built an enormous castle out of sand and sticks and straw and bullshit. And it's going to come down. It's just a question of which way does it fall and who gets to keep what they've got off this corrupt system when the collapse happens who's who gets to bail who gets to be bailed out who gets to take their crap out of the castle before it collapses mm -hmm. um and 
it's just a, that's a mess. It's an absolute mess. I, I don't think there is any, I think we're just looking at consensus on what the hell to do and who is in charge and who's making the plays just fall apart. Um, and I think, I just think there's no, there's no path forward. There's. And like, like we were saying last time, I don't know. I mean, cause you, you said a few moments ago, like um, <clears throat> the, 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 the investments that these banks have to make in the treasuries and that kind of stuff as being potentially a bad investment or one that wasn't properly managed in terms of risk or whatever. But if you're a so-called systemically important bank, or now if you're even that definition is more broad, but certainly if you're like one of the major banks, I mean, can you, can you just imagine what it's like to be them? It's like, we can take all the risk we want. We can buy, sure. We'll buy whatever you want us to buy because they know, I mean, this is the moral hazard that was basically born in 2008, but they know that they're in the clear, no matter what, they're too big to fail, literally. Like they can't be allowed to fail. So they can do whatever the fuck they want. They can take as much risk as they want. They'll, they can, whatever. And oopsie Global, daisy. systemically important banks. Can't right. have those guys. <laughs> right. Like when when, shit, when shit hits the fan, they all they have to do is blame it on somebody else and then go with their hands out to, you know, the powers of be, the Fed, Treasury, whomever. So, you know, for them, it's all investments are good investments because they can't lose, basically. They, they, they're effectively the house. They're, they're basically just an arm of, of, of the central banks at this point. Um, so what do you think, you know, Balaji made that big, you know, made the stir with his uh, million dollar Bitcoin in 90 days thing. And I, I doubt that he truly is expecting that price. I suspect he's doing it to bring attention to everything that's going on and point to mm -hmm. Bitcoin as the only, you know, uh, true signal, viable alternative, life raft, et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, his point that this may be the beginning of the end, so to speak, of this grand experiment, because as you say, I mean, there's no good options the you know the people the the central banks and the governments are in between a rock and a hard place mm -hmm. and it doesn't seem like there's any way to you know we always just kind of assume the can will get kicked down the road further at least most people do and bitcoiners you know perhaps some of us we probably err on the side of thinking it's going to all go to hell sooner than it actually is you know i'm always yeah have always been surprised that it can persist as long as it does but um you know maybe that was the point of 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 balaji's tweets what do you make of that whole situation. I didn't get to finish the spaces um, with him and Breed Love, I think, and Gladstein. Um, but uh, so I didn't get to hear his whole argument as to what he exactly saw. I mean, outside of the fact that there's like a collapse happening and we're bailing out Credit Suisse and SVB and, you know, all of this stuff, um, uh, which obviously that that enough is an indication that something is terribly wrong and maybe there's no way out. But um uh, I mean, I think the idea that Bitcoin is going to be a million dollars in 90 days is stupid. <laughs> well, sure. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, maybe he's doing it for attention. Uh, I, I don't I don't know. Maybe he actually believes it. Um, I think trying to call the time on when anything is going to collapse or how it's going to unravel. Like, I think this thing is way, 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 way too big and complex with way too many players and factors to even possibly like i it wouldn't like super surprise me if we kind of had this environment of like two years on two years off of collapse and bailout and collapse and 10 percent, 20 percent inflation in between for like 10 years like i but if it did collapse in 90 days 
I think I could look back on it in two years and be like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, like I, I don't think either is really out of the realm of possibility. Um, but that's why I pull everything that I do not immediately uh, like need at risk out so that I'm just, I, I'm a spectator, you know, um, as much as possibly can be like, not as if I'm even possibly disconnected from what would be a global banking collapse of the federal right, reserve right. system. But nonetheless, I I have as much outside of it as possible that I can still communicate and trade and you know deal with value that is not tethered to that disaster yeah um, without but, uh, without uh sharing whatever personal details you prefer not to share but and again this is a topic we've talked about in bitcoin land for years like mm -hmm. what do you do when the when the collapse actually happens you know and having your you know your financial optionality in bitcoin is step one and that's a damn fine step um what else do you think is prudent in such a scenario? Should it take 90 days or should it take five years to 10 years to unwind or unfold? Um, I would say have a way to get out of cities, um, like ha have an exit plan for really populated areas. Um, and then also uh, find local sources of things, particularly to where you might be exiting to. Um, but like, you know, the beef initiative slogan is uh, shake your farmer's hand or mm -hmm. shake your butcher's hand or whatever it is. Like know where your meat is coming from, know where your food is coming from. Uh, and if the grocery store is empty, do you have first call on, do you already have a relationship with somebody or are you now standing in line behind a thousand other people who are desperate to find eggs, you know, um, and uh, establish a relationship now like go like i know that's uncomfortable i know that's like out of people's normal purview and it's like oh god this new th like all the things that i have to worry about and crap that i have to deal with from day to day and now i have like a whole new list of things it's well you're going to have double that list of things if you wait until you need them you know um and so yeah in that in that context i would find local sources of and also like one, one thing i'm trying to do now um which i don't know how soon i'll be able to invest toward this direction just because the, i mean look at my basement i've got a lot of things on my plate um but uh i'm trying to figure out how to produce a little bit of energy that's not dependent on the grid right um because i expect we, we will have rolling blackouts if if there is hyperinflation or a financial crisis people will not be able to pay bills people uh, in, trade for fuel and energy sources will shut down the ability to communicate like I, I mean think about like what would happen if the price of electricity the price of sourcing the electricity versus the price to the consumer got out of whack by 50 percent for 24 hours power goes out um so uh like margins are small if if your margin is eaten by the currency and you don't even have time to figure out what that what the correction is um you got a big problem. Um, so I'm trying to figure out how to charge a phone and, you know, run, run a, maybe an S9, a heater, <laughs> um, like do something to be able to protect from kind of the worst of it. You know, it, 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 I think in those sorts of situations when like things get really potentially really, really bad, um, uh, 
separating just 10% of your dependence, uh, 15% of your reliance on some other infrastructure or somebody else's production of energy or somebody else's production of food or whatever it is, goes a long way to covering the gaps. It's a whole lot different than you know having to eat a certain type of food that you just wouldn't normally do for two days before supply comes back in versus not having any food at all for those mm. two days. You know, like if I had to eat tomatoes for two days because that was the only thing I had growing, that would be different than not having food until the grocery store got restocked. Um, so just a little bit of sovereignty goes a long way when the shit hits the fan. And I think whether it's next month, next week, next year, five years from now, just start piece by piece ticking away and getting a little bit of sovereignty and all the different, think of all the things that you were dependent on from day to day and figure out how to have a little bit of that that you make yourself or you produce yourself or you acquire in some alternative way. So yeah, that's I, totally, I, I totally agree with that. You know, and I, I bought in 2017, I bought like six months worth of dried food, that whole thing, six months worth mm -hmm. of dried food for four people, I think. Um, mm -hmm. And it's with my parents now, not with me, which is, you know, probably for the nice. best. Yeah. But someday, maybe I'll be vindicated on that purchase. Not that I want to be, because it would, you know, it's going to be kind of shitty if everyone's living out of uh, drive dried food sort of thing. And and to your point, mm -hmm. I think it's much better that uh, if you're in a sufficiently rural environment and you know some food producers, then you know eating steaks from your local uh, rancher is much better than fucking powdered peanut butter and you know <laughs> rice and shit like that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. In a pinch, in a pinch. It's yeah. it's, you know, it's like it's a an insurance few, a few thousand bucks for insurance. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. As I say, it's it's an insurance policy. So you don't want to have to call it in, but if you need to call it in and you don't have it, you're in a bad way. Yeah. You know? Um maybe the last thing on on the whole banking stuff, but last time we spoke about the potential, you know, tension or competition between Fed and ECB, you know, the euro dollar market thing does open up opening up these swap lines is lines contradict that you know that narrative or how does you know how does that change that sort of dynamic in your mind i genuinely don't know i do not know how that alters the i i don't have i still don't have a strong enough foundation to to know how some new factor would play into that fight um and it's still something that i'm just trying to consume as much as I can around the topic to get a sense of it because there's a lot of conflicting ideas. Like some people think that that's a nonsense theory and some people are like straight up sold on yeah. it, you know? Um, so a new element being brought into that, I do not know. Isn't it interesting mm -hmm. that that whole thing is kind of like just for a certain segment of people, i.e. big purchasers of US government debt, they can just magic wand and say, the rate hikes didn't happen for you. Everyone yeah. else, yeah, the cost of capital is yeah. still high and you're still, you Psychotic. know, you're still fucked basically and everything. But for you, this privileged group over here, over here, let's just erase that and you can start back on the the start line again. It's yeah. just it's crazy. Insane. Um, all right. Let's get into the more technical stuff that I, I wanted to discuss with you because I, you know, I very mm -hmm. much appreciate your um, you know, your opinion on this stuff and how much you tinker with everything. The first thing is the the ordinal stuff. What's your take uh -huh. on 
all of that. Hit me with your hit me with the guy's take on ordinals. All right. I actually haven't done this on the show yet. So um, I this will probably encourage me to finally like, OK, I'll do an episode on it. Um, and I've had a bunch of people ask me, it's like, what about what about ordinals? I'll be like, I'll do an episode, I swear. Um, uh, but uh, so ordinals, the, the simple idea, I don't really think there's much of anything to ordinals. Ordinals is kind of an inevitability, like like inevitability um, where uh, like actually Steve uses words steve using words i don't know steve uh, a good friend of mine from the raleigh crew um i think you've met him actually at one of the conferences uh he uh we had actually talked about something similar of just like whose bitcoin do you own like like where were your bitcoin that you have in your utxo where were they mined originally like you know what if like even though i bought my bitcoin yesterday i could technically hold something that connects to a utxo all the way back to like block 10 you know it's possible mm-hmm. um so how could you trace that back and then if you had a subset of that bitcoin maybe you would be like oh my god i got block 10 bitcoin i'm not gonna i'm not gonna get rid of this you know if i if i send some bitcoin to somebody i'll, I'll use my block seven hundred twenty-two thousand bitcoin not my block 10 bitcoin um and essentially what ordinals do is it's a layer on top. So it's not a consensus thing. Bitcoin, the Bitcoin rules have no clue that this is going on and doesn't care. There's, there's nothing in Bitcoin that distinguishes one Satoshi from another. Um, uh, but what the ordinals system or what the ordinals thing does is it literally just goes back to all the mined Bitcoin. So like the first, the Genesis block, and the very the very first sat of the Genesis block, which comes in a fifty, uh, fifty Bitcoin, so about five billion uh, sat block, so to speak, um, is uh, uh, it just assigns the very first sat of that, which would be the first sat out. Um, so if if you spent one Satoshi from the 50 Bitcoin in the Genesis block, which you can't do technically. It's stuck there forever. But regardless, if you spent one Satoshi, that would be the zero Satoshi. That would be the zero ordinal. If you spent two Satoshis or 10 Satoshis, it would be the zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. And every Satoshi after that, for every Bitcoin that has been mined from bottom to top, is given a number. And then... By doing that, you can then trace through the UTXO history just by saying first in, first out, that when I had uh, 100,000 Satoshis in a UTXO and I sent 10,000, the earliest 10,000 of in the ordinal are the ones that I sent out. And that might be a combination of things. That might be from block five, from block 800, from block 129,512. You know, like it might be, 10 Satoshis from one, a thousand Satoshis from another. And it is just a way to put sats, the all 2.1 quadrillion sats in order. Just, just assign them a number. Um, and you have to run this exact same software on top of it with the exact same rules to get the exact same order. Like I could issue a different ordinal thing that gives a completely different number and does last in, first out. So that when you spent that first Satoshi, it was actually uh, Satoshi 5 billion, not Satoshi zero. Um, And so it's purely arbitrary what the actual rules of the ordinals are, but it essentially gives each Satoshi uniqueness. 
if anybody cares about the ordinal software. So that's that's what an ordinal is. Um, I don't really think it matters um, if people start caring and valuing them differently. I mean, sure, it's like a oh, Bitcoin isn't fungible anymore, but it's kind of like you know if if I wanted to, if I accepted ten dollars for something. And like, you know, there's certain ones that have a serial number that start like 420 X J blah, blah, whatever on the serial number. It's like, oh, I want my 420 bills. It's, it's like some dude's going to collect them. It's like, okay, I, I don't, I don't really care. It doesn't really change my relationship to the money. And I don't really care. Like if there's some collector who wants one of my Satoshis and will pay more Satoshis for it. If I don't care about the collectible nature of it, then I'm I got more Satoshis. Like it's fungible to me, you know. Like I just mm. I just don't care. Inscriptions, yeah. Inscriptions are a different story. Um, and uh, and I actually haven't worked out why these are supposedly connected. I guess because the inscriptions, because the inscriptions are built entirely in the signature data. Um, it's basically like arbitrary. And this is something that's been going on in Bitcoin for a while. It's just that you're not, you didn't have the scope of data that you now have accessible. Thanks to a combination of SegWit, the block weight discount, and Taproot. Um, like all of these things kind of gave one little piece of the puzzle. And individually, each one of their trade-offs or their logical reasons for existing perfectly make perfect sense you know the block weight um actually did make sense to begin with because the signature data is the only thing that you can prune and not have to worry about whether it conflicts with the monetary policy so separating that out and using that to get the soft fork was really clever at the time and it was logical for there to be a discount but then when you start using that to just push push arbitrary data rather than ownership data um, and you're just putting JPEGs in it. It's like, well, crap, you just gave a discount to bullshit, you know? Um, and, uh, but then you still had a limit, the one megabyte limit on, uh, the size of any transaction and then tap root because you have an infinite tap tree, um, which was again, logically so that you could make increasingly complex ownership hierarchies and you didn't have to worry about how far down you were in the tree and how much signature data you had to publish to redeem your ownership of it. Um, and then you can compact it, like because that's the beauty of Taproot, right? You just post the root. And so you can have all these huge trees with all this huge amount of data, and you still don't have to take up a whole lot of space on the blockchain. So it was actually kind of an efficiency tool to get really complex monetary features that we wanted. Um, but then if you just put a bunch of if, op, and op, like, and then just sticks packets of arbitrary bullshit in it I mean, you could just make a four megabyte jpeg and stick it on the blockchain um and so i'm partially disgusted that this has become a thing because i think like people say that it's subjective and that you know like what anybody wants to use the blockchain for is it's up to them and there's there's merit to that argument but there is objectively no comparison between the market for nfts 
which JC Crown, uh, a good friend of mine, also in the Bitcoin meetup and in the audio knots, said that I thought this was such a beautiful way to describe this. They're collectible stickers. The, the market for NFTs is the market for collectible stickers. There's a real market there. People, mm -hmm. there are collectible stickers in real world, in the real world. But it has nothing, objectively, the money for market is always a billion orders of magnitude larger. NFTs are at best a fad. And when they are no longer a fad, they are baseball cards and collectible stickers at best. Um, and which probably means they won't have a long-term lasting effect which probably means they won't really be meaningful in like three to four years. And we'll look back on this as like, look at this stupid thing that we used to stick on the blockchain and like, you know, a little, a couple of them make it through every little bit of while, but nobody really cares. You know, that's, that's what I'm hoping for. Um, but objectively the monetary value and the monetary use of Bitcoin is is the use case. Like there is no market that's larger than money. Money is the larger mar largest market possible because it is what enables the market. It is mm -hmm. what it was makes a market able to exist. It is the most important thing, hands down, no questions asked. Anything else is a derivative of that at best. Um, and because of that, the four megabyte block weight and the increase in block size was valuable as long as it did not sacrifice too much of the monetary integrity, the ability to secure and prove and validate all of the monetary rules, if that space is used to increase monetary transactions, to increase its use as money. Um, but the fact that it is disproportionately valuable for people not using it as money is a little upsetting is like <sighs> Jesus, you know. Um but in that same vein, I think the I, I think this kind of alludes to the cost of making changes and that even subtle and extremely conservative and extremely well thought out changes in combination can result in something that people didn't expect. Mm -hmm. um, that there is always, always a trade-off and there is always a risk, um, especially when you're removing bounds on things, like removing the bounds of how big of signature data you can use. Um, and I wish it had been more obvious that this was, this could be a result. I, I think it would have absolutely changed the discussion. Um, like, I don't think Schnorr signatures are bad. I think Taproot would have still gotten in but i think they're probably if that discussion had started ahead of time there would have been some sort of limit like there would have been like a hard 300 kilobytes per signature tree or some something put into the consensus or I, I don't know exactly what it would be but i feel like it would have been addressed um but that said as much as i think there is a downside to having this become like a large portion of fee data and validation cost for people running nodes. I think the cost of trying to soft fork or correct it after it is already here is worse. Like, like trying to undo it does not, doesn't come without risk either. Like regardless of what the supposed benefit is, which means that we should take, I, I, I am in a position where I take this as a scar on forward planning, on forward looking. And uh, with a mild negative externality, 
Um, it's not, it's not like the end of the world or anything, but it's, it's a, it would have been really better. It would have been a whole lot better if the barrier to stamping monkey JPEGs onto the blockchain had stayed a little bit higher. Um, uh, because we always could JPEGs, dick, butt JPEGs, big butt, dick, butt JPEGs, dick, butt JPEGs. Um, but, uh, I mean, technically you could have done this with like a series of like a hundred transactions or a thousand transactions and stuck each piece into op return. It's just a whole lot easier to do it with op if, and just punch it all in the signature data because you get 20, a very significant discount doing it that way, as opposed to doing it, doing it per UTXO. However, there is a, there is a little bit of a benefit there is that that signature data can be validated and then pruned, whereas the UTXO data can't. So if they did it in the UTXO data, you'd actually bloat the UTXO set, which you have to actually keep in RAM on a computer, which has a much worse scaling profile than hard drive space. Like if I have to have like 80 gigs of RAM just to hold all the potential Bitcoin transactions that could happen in the next 10 minutes, that would be a big problem. If I have to have two terabytes or three terabytes worth of hard drive space in a couple of years, but I can still do it on eight gigs of RAM or 16 gigs of RAM, that's different. That's, what that's, that's what different. precludes is, that from happening? Is it a cost issue? Is it a complexity issue? The former in it's, the UTXO. Um, it's that it, there's a 75 discount, 75% discount to do it in signature data. So, right, so it's the, still, it's the still, logic of the SegWit weight limit actually still applies. It would be worse if they were doing it with UTXO and op returns than if they did it with the signature data because we that, can prune the signature data yeah. and, and still have proof or, or validation ongoing of, of you know, full security of the Bitcoin system. Mm-hmm. Doing um, it, it, the UTXO method that you just mentioned, should someone be motivated and have, have the financial means... Um, is this any kind of attack vector? I mean, you just mentioned you blowed up the RAM, um, uh, you know, required to, you it's know, blowed. run a node. Let's say yeah. they used to do it. People have done it in the past. There are is there it, are burnt UTXOs it, that you can't do anything with that have signature data that are this nonsense, so that they could stamp something. Into could it be the brought chain. to a level that it would be and it, it's like, like an empty UTXO so significantly disruptive to anything? Could it be done on a scale? Um, I mean. Theoretically, given the Tec- you know, I mean, structure. Yeah, technically. Um, uh, certainly, it, it's just costly. Um, and oh, funny enough is if a whole bunch of people are doing ordinals and fees go up, it gets more costly to run that attack. So um, like, like I said, everything is a trade-off. Nothing's clear in one direction or another. Um, the higher the fees are uh, and the bigger the mempool is, the dumber it is to try to submit that attack. Um, but play it, play it however, out like with a, a well capitalized attacker that this UTXO method like I just want to I want to take the Bitcoin network down to what extent mm-hmm. is this a, a a viable method of interrupting anything and to what degree is it interrupted um it could increase the the data cost and bloat of running a node um, in a in a pretty big way, and there may be a way to do it where it's not identifiable, where it's very very difficult for a client to on the client side to recognize a useless UTXO from a viable UTXO, um, and under the assumption that they figure out a way to hide it, it would it would almost necessarily be like trivial amounts because the less trivial the amount, the more costly the attack. You know, like you could do it with uh, 
$100,000 in fees if your UTXOs were empty, essentially, or they had one sat or they had 10 sat or something, right? Um, whereas uh, if you had, if you did it with a billion dollars or $10 billion, you could do it where, where every UTXO had a hundred bucks worth of value in it and they were all burnt, but you couldn't tell. And so basically the client would not have any way to know that they had to, they could prune the, those hundred dollars. But obviously it's an order of magnitude more expensive for the attack because rather than paying fees, you're, you're burning Bitcoin that uh, are explicitly valuable to make it hard to dis distinguish that these are bullshit transactions. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think spam so of various sorts are, is always some sort of an attack vector of any open network of any kind. That's why it's so critical that the game theory and the economics line up that that spam is incredibly costly. Um, but yeah, it could be uh, as 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 long as a well capitalized adversary could uh, um, keep it up and was willing to burn through a lot of value, um, a lot of real economic ir irrecoverable economic value to do that. Uh, it could cause it could make it very very difficult to. Uh, it can make me need twice the computer to run a node um, and potentially put a lot of nodes out of sync or make it harder to spin one up, you know, like where like initial block download takes like a day or two, like they could turn it into four days, five days. Um, but that's essential. I mean, that's that's the whole argument for a small block size. Like, like That's the argument since the beginning is an attacker could always make things harder for people. Like we're we're working in kind of an optimal situation where everybody's just kind of using it the way it ought to be used and attackers are very small relatively speaking and they only ever you know, you know the closest thing we've had to spam is satoshi dice and jpegs um so uh but certainly any open network has problems of open adversaries because mm -hmm. you can't you can't close off their access to it um but i don't think it would kill bitcoin it would just be it, it would just reinforce all of the arguments that have been made for so, so long that, yeah, they were right, because look how much of a pain in the ass this is, even considering how conservative we've been and how clear we've been about restrictions and caps and fee markets and like all of these things, like we've oriented this way for so long and so strictly. And even then, you're still subject to some potential there's still an attack. There's there are still multiple attack vectors, but I just don't think they're they're Bitcoin killing attack vectors. They're just Bitcoin pain in the ass attack vectors. Right. I mean, we just finished discussing how, like, with the stroke of a pen, the powers that be can just drum up a hundred billion dollars. So, yeah. Presumably, yeah. if there was a a way to even just annoy the network or you know mm -hmm. cause some sort of impact, it, you know, they, they have access to yeah. all the all the capital of the world effectively mm -hmm. and so you know that's why i'm i'm wondering to what extent given let's say you know as much as not limitless capital but you know a shit ton of capital just how mm -hmm. disruptive would an attack like that taken to its extreme actually be which i guess you've you've pretty much answered but i don't know if you want to put any more meat on that or we can move i on. don't know to what extent uh like like how much of a problem could <clears throat> it be for a resource issue for for computers um but uh uh it's not as if not being able to keep the entire utxo set in ram is 
vicious is like an like oh well now my node doesn't work like you could still run to hard drive and you know collect the data again but that comp doing that work is a is a pain like you're talking about huge delays between node validation mm-hmm. um however um we kind of already seen a lot of this like the dust transactions um did you ever get in the old wallets or whatever you got like 10 sat ra- random like they just like Probably, sprayed yeah. All the oh, wallets oh. and all the addresses. I don't like that was a that was a UTXO notice. Yeah. Um. Well, I I remember my old an old mycelium wallet and uh, uh I think my Armory wallet. I, I noticed at some point I would just be like, "Where is this ten sat? What is this?" And it was literally just somebody looking at the blockchain and just like, "Here are all the UTXOs that are out. Or here are the the valid addresses that exist," and then just. Spraying sats, which would what's the, what's the double, motivation that fill up the double the UTXO? I actually think it was, uh, I think it was an analysis attack. Um, I mean, it's hard to say what, but you know, if I'm ever sweeping addresses and then I mix with an address that has 10 sat in it, I'm attaching those addresses together. Mm-hmm. So it, it's able to basically have a threshold of sats that's so small that your default wallet behavior is going to put it into any aggregate transaction because you want to get rid of that UTXO. It's economically important to get rid of that as early as possible and pool it with other UTXOs. And what that does is it associates your addresses together quicker um, or, or, or more succinctly um, for an attacker who's watching that. So I would suspect at least at a time, that's how I was thinking about it. Um, that it was like a chain analysis sort of attack is like how do we how do we group the utxos together to see who owns what and i i, I don't really know and i think not a whole lot came of it came of it and i don't think it's like some like i mean utxo consolidation is just kind of like a thing that happens in bitcoin a lot anyway so i don't i don't know how much that really changed the game as far as yeah. like how much it was a pain to orchestrate that um so i don't i don't think it's really a big deal and i think there's still i, I think i actually one of my wallets let me say just don't spin from this one i just never used it but um right yeah i don't know well it's the, a reality of open networks yeah the the meat of of what i wanted to discuss was actually something you referred to you know five minutes ago discussing the the uh, ordinals thing which is basically mm-hmm. uh you know had people known that it was this was a potentiality when the upgrade was being discussed, then maybe there would have been some thing done to mitigate it or, you know, some solution would have been found. And so basically, mm-hmm. you know, something unexpected occurred. Now, mm-hmm. it doesn't seem to be existential. You may not like it. Maybe it's a pain in the ass. You know, maybe it has some sort of uh, effect, but it's it's not existential. And, you know, the, the I've been talking to a few people lately about this issue. And Basically, it's the issue around upgrades and the rationale that one should apply to determining, you know, the validity, the viability, the mm-hmm. you know of a of a given upgrade. And I, I don't I don't find that that there's much discussion about that. I think a lot of us are not super technically savvy, and we defer to you know the so-called experts. And then if there's enough kind of loose social consensus that, you know, the experts have it more or less right, then everyone's like, oh, I guess it's, I guess it's cool then. Um, 
and that just seems uh that that makes me somewhat uneasy that it's an unfortunate process existence yeah um no i totally see the point and i completely agree because there's a i mean hell there's you know you can count on two hands the number of people who really understand a lot of this stuff um like schnorr signatures and you know like the ins and outs of like a potential ecdsa vulnerability or something like that like and it lends itself to the problem of consensus without a consensus protocol like there's no social or knowledge consensus on any of this crap which is why like uh bitcoin as a consensus mechanism is such an insanely valuable thing because it's monetary consensus in a world where that sort of consensus is inherently impossible because of the differences between people between knowledge between skills between uh, everything everything that we have values and culture and everything um consensus is the ultimate problem of civilization versus the individual um and uh so in that sense any even slight change to the consensus rules means you're back in a place where consensus you're back to a consensus problem so there there's no formalized way to issue a soft fork there's no concrete way to distinguish what any trade-off is you basically have the people who feel like they know <laughs> like they might not feel like they know what the potential downside of this thing is or the potential upside and then they argue with each other and then a whole bunch of people watch the spectacle of argument and they say i agree this person makes a lot more sense than this person i agree with them and so i'm gonna run this node like it's really really messy because social consensus is a nightmare this is what government doesn't. This is why democracy is such a disaster on a long enough timeline. It works barely for a little fraction of human history before it collapses and you have to regurgitate and you have to start back over from scratch. Like, like you think about it, like from longevity, from a longevity perspective, our civilizations, our societies are really crappy. Like they don't, <laughs> they don't last, but you know, it's generations before you have massive structural change and democracy has for all of its sacred cowness that you're not allowed to say there's negatives to it has largely ended in horrible disasters and has is pretty short-lived especially from a monetary perspective like you have to it's like 30 years before fiat is dead and you have to start over um i mean our monetary system has gone undergone foundational changes like four times three one two three arguably three maybe four times in the last 130 years um uh three concretely um, but uh, you could say yeah, 2001 to 2009 zone in the great financial crisis was a pretty serious structural change, but, you know, arguable. Um, but yeah, uh, there's no clean answer to any of that. Um, well, my, uh, my like consensus is just messy. Uh, yeah, what's, what's the concrete my, question, I guess? Yeah, my question is this. So you could characterize that whole process as a dialogue, discourse, debate, struggle to actually define what Bitcoin is or should be, you know, because yeah. you're, you're discussing changes to it that are going to change how it functions. And so you're, mm -hmm. you're saying, I think Bitcoin should be this. I think Bitcoin should be this. So that's, that's one aspect of it. Like what is Bitcoin and what are people expecting it to be? What would be its highest value proposi proposition to civilization? Mm -hmm. All those kinds of things. That's one element of it. The other element is, okay, let's just 
focus in on one particular definition of Bitcoin, one potential future definition that requires a, a change to become that thing. Mm -hmm. Well, then the question is, well, what are the risks in pursuing that definition? What are the risks in, in trying to make Bitcoin in that image of that you know ideal, let's say? And, you know, human knowledge is forever incomplete. So there's always going to be unknowns. There's always going to be unknown unknowns. And yeah. so, yeah. and it seems to me, you know, like I'm not trying to disparage anyone here, but it seems to me sometimes there's a degree of hubris in not fully appreciating that. And so for me, the question is, how should we approach defining and making changes to this thing that we deem to be almost more meaningful than anything else, at least in intersubjective like uh, markets or, or, or space. Yeah. 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 Um, when those risks are always lying latent and some of them may be existential, some of them may be just uh, degrading over time, you know, so mm -hmm. just to give you an example of that one, you know, let's say, various upgrades take place and no existential risks emerge some well you, you could say maybe the inscription thing is somewhat uh degrading right some that mm -hmm. that opens up a new way in which the system can be impinged impaired degraded in some capacity well one mm -hmm. you you wind that clock forward 50 years and maybe that happens 5 10 15 more times and then you know mm -hmm. so you get more degradation over time even if that doesn't happen the frequency of change just invites the possibility that one of those changes will be either intentionally or unintentionally sensorial or, or you know, uh, invite an existential risk of some time. Every time you open that door, you know, you think it's a good guy coming through. Maybe it's a bad guy coming through. Is you know, maybe mm -hmm. it's not the best analogy, but you know what I'm saying. Um, and so, yeah, my like what the question I always I'm I'm trying to ask and trying to discuss with people is. How should we be approaching an understanding, a rationale, a logic around what changes to make to Bitcoin, i.e. how to define it and how to go about making the, or, and, and what the risks are in going about making those changes? Because even if we could say, well, yeah, I like that definition of Bitcoin and I wish it could, I'd like it to be that, is it worth the trade-offs of attempting to make it that way? Um, and just, yeah. you know, for a little more context, and then I'll hand it over to you, you know, mm -hmm. the recent stuff with the uh, CTV vaults and that kind of stuff. Um, and like, again, full respect to the developers and their hard work and their expertise in this particular domain. They have expertise in making Bitcoin conform to a definition, right? But I don't think they mm -hmm. have any really more expertise than you and I in defining what Bitcoin should be, because there's an, you know, there's a economics, philo philosophy, mm -hmm. all sorts of stuff wrapped up in the latter. In actually making it a be technical, that in the technical domain, yeah. of course, they, yeah. they have yeah. far more expertise. But I mm -hmm. see, you know, in this particular case, and again, I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but it goes something like, wouldn't it be great if Bitcoin had this functionality? And we assume mm -hmm. that that would make things like custody better. And we assume that would mean easier and better adoption because not everyone's going to custody 12 words in a way that's going to scale to so many people, you know, that whole thing. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of assumptions there. And my question is, how far out do we want to push those assumptions for a presumed or assumed gain when we are contending with an unknown set of risks? And so, yeah. you know, obviously this is basically the kind of ossification versus, you know, 
continue developing sort of argument, but mm -hmm. it, it, it's also an argument for kind of the soul of Bitcoin. Like what should it, because, and I think you, you and I have even discussed this and I'm sure we've both thought about it. Like part of the, mm -hmm. the beauty and the power of Bitcoin, not just as a so-called better money, but in its seeming influence to, or its impact and influence over the people that engage with it, you know, the, each of us as individuals, the so-called Bitcoin culture, there's an element there of taking greater responsibility, right? And that's tends, to, and there's an element of also truth there. And that these in conjunction with many other things tend to change people's perspective and, and change their lives. How much, you know, and again, bit of an exaggeration. I know this is long-winded, but if we continue to take the approach that we have to change Bitcoin to conform to our imperfections or our conveniences or our desires, to what extent- Our necessarily incomplete view of what it is or what it ought to be. Yeah. And necessarily and, and, not encompassing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. right. And, and so and to what degree do we lose the effects of Bitcoin effectively, you know, so-called saying to us, this is what I am as an absolute. You have to be the one to change in order to invite the benefits that I represent into your life, into your you know communities, mm -hmm. markets, countries, world, whatever. Um, and so again, all there's there's many issues there, and I'm sorry for the you know kind of smashing them all together. But that's the conversation that I don't see happening very much, and I mm -hmm. that makes me uneasy because I think it's an incredibly important conversation to have and obviously it's complex but it is effectively for the soul of bitcoin if we want to be dramatic about it and so you know i wanted to talk to you about all that stuff yeah so there's there's a lot to unpack there um and a really good question and like really critical to to understand kind of our relationship to this thing uh, because, you know, there is no, I mean, like, again, like I said, there's no such thing as social consensus is ultimately the problem. And, and what I see as Bitcoin, like, I don't, I don't see something that's incapable of being changed. I don't see something that's incapable of being destroyed. I see something that is a consensus mechanism that is fundamentally an order of magnitude improvement over the speed with which we usually destroy things and our systems as humans. You know, like democracy dies very, very quickly. It changes to the negative insanely quickly. You know, like all you have to do is get the wimp, you, you, you spin up a little bit of hype about something and push some propaganda, and then you can fundamentally alter the rules of society like kind of under everybody's nose and people are too ignorant to even understand what's going on. And the defense against that change is almost impossible, you know, like for the average person. But the block size war showed that the defense for the individual is vastly greater than what we are coming from. But that doesn't mean it's in immutable. That doesn't mean it's impossible. Um, it's immutable in relationship to all of the immutable things in our lives, but it is not immutable to the you know, in, immutable laws of the universe, right? Like the, it's 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 a range and it's somewhere in the middle. Um, and we can cause damage to it. And uh, we can uh, try to project our individual ignorance and our individual inability to understand its importance. Like even if we know it's really important, we still might not understand to what degree until 20 years down the road. Like 
looking back, it might be, holy shit, this was even more important than I understood, you know? Right. Right. Um, and, uh, and that, you know, these, what seemingly minor changes had huge outsized effects. But I think that's kind of the cast, like the butterfly effect of just society in general, you know? Um, and I think, you know, we learn from these things, uh, and, you know, even, even the constitution, if, even if we kept it like just the constitution as our base of laws and we drop the billion other pages of nonsense, the constitution has scars. You know, we they made mistakes and corrected things and changed amendments like as as slow as it is to change that. Like they just basically built a layer on top of it so that they could absolve it of any power whatsoever. Um, but uh, I mean, it, you know, at the end of the day, it's just a piece of paper. But in in the context of something like Bitcoin, that's the attempt is how do we have something more concrete and even more difficult to change? And I think it lends itself to a increasing culture of more and more serious conservatism, more and more reluctance to make changes because we are constantly learning lessons that can't be undone, that can't be corrected. Um, and I think as things go on, even as we change it and make mistakes, potentially, that the trade-off is not as clean as we thought or is not as well, like our defining of that trade-off, even in trying to be sensible and humble about it, we still did not foresee all of the things. I think it makes us more reluctant to change the next time. Um, so I, I, the one of the beauties, one of the beauty elements of beauty in how like Bitcoin consensus does change when you know we are able to restrict it with soft forks is it stays within the broader consensus rules, and it's increasingly difficult the more changes we make, especially whenever we appear to make some sort of mistake or miscalculation mm -hmm. um, and that it changes us more and more with time. Like I, I think the way Taproot was pushed and the way Taproot was, which I was fully in support of, and I still don't think Taproot is a net negative, but I am totally empathetic to the idea that it might have been, you know, uh, or at least the way it was done. Um, and it will certainly make me think twice, like I'll definitely reconsider as much as like commitments I've thought for a while are really important part of kind of getting the full set before Bitcoin ossification. Um, commitments seem like a really important piece of the puzzle. And I've kind of liked the idea that it was like really broad uh, with uh, uh, op TX hash and like some of these other proposals. And then it kept narrowing down op uh, CTV and like all these things like it got like more cleaner and more direct and then now op vault is op vault is even like more concise than that it's like it's very extremely direct like i think that's the proper direction less broad more like absolute singular use case that makes sense and um moves things to the consensus layer if it makes sense to do so if it's that important of a use case and considering the fact that i think people the whole world can't have a utxo you know, um, like it just the way Bitcoin works and the way consensus on the monetary base is even possible is a hugely data limiting reality, um, which means that not everybody can do a base layer transaction every day, every year, even really. Um, and because of that, we need tiered, federated, shared ownership that is trustless or trust minimized. 
Um, so that Bitcoin kind of behaves as this ultimate end of the road arbiter, but we can make these changes. I mean, that's what Lightning Network is, right? It's it's a shared ownership that allows modifications, but Bitcoin is the ultimate arbiter. So we can modify ownership many, many times, thousands of times, tens of thousands of times, and then go back to Bitcoin if there's ever a conflict. Um, it's like it's like going to court to settle who owns the house, but the court is distributed and it's the ultimate arbiter and there is no politics involved. It's just Bitcoin, right? Um, so in that sense, I think the means of expanding or, or adding some rule or some new restriction to Bitcoin at the consensus layer that enables that is potentially the, the best case trade-off. But again, it all has trade-offs and I don't even pretend to have like anybody really has any concrete full picture of what those costs are when there are costs um, and what the long-term consequences of them are. And the best we can do is react to our failures and try to make it, uh, try to minimize those costs after the fact. Like like an example for the UTXO thing is I'm pretty sure UTREEXO, that model of like being able to quickly download and validate the UTXO set is actually a way to mitigate the UTXO bloat. Um, uh, so there are already there are tricks that we can do and ways that we can minimize the resource cost by being clever on top of Bitcoin rather than changing Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so all of that is kind of a long roundabout way of saying our failures or our mistakes or the trade-offs that we did not foresee ought to make us more conservative and more reluctant to change it in the future. And that I think Bitcoin has a feedback loop of making it more resistant to change because more and more people kind of get PTSD. Like, I mean, think about how difficult we spent. We spent two and a half years, three years, just arguing about how to implement Taproot, where we were all like, okay, yeah, we want Schnorr signatures. This is arguably just a, a good improvement. We don't think it's like insecure in any cryptographic way or any of this. How do we do it? How do we how do we just go about getting consensus on the fact that we have to change that we want to change consensus? And then we viciously argued just about the mechanism that we would do it, whether or not it would take two years to validate where we would do speedy trial. And it wasn't even about whether or not we do taproot, which may have actually been the more important question. Right. Um, at, regarding inscriptions today, at least. Um, so uh, the more and more PTSD we get on making these changes, I think the harder and harder the argument gets to make these changes in the future. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that's a good thing, um, especially when you look at societal and consensus layer changes when it comes to politics and government and traditions and culture from a historical perspective and how much the speed and ease of change has caused, has had horrible consequences. Mm -hmm. for society um so that's that's my hope in kind of the long term is that it it continues to force us to look longer and longer out and think more and more about what we don't know you know stay humble stack sats bitcoin makes you humble like it will humble you and then when you think you knew something and you know you push a change i mean like think about how humble uh how embarrassing it must be for um oh what's the developer who had that really bad bug that would have been a consensus bug that, that opened up that attack vector that would have 
allowed inflation again. Um, uh, I mean, it, it didn't get exploited and it wasn't exactly easy to exploit, but a dedicated miner with resources could have actively done so. And it would have been like a huge portion of the nodes wouldn't have seen it. Um, I can't remember the the CVE number, but um, uh, regardless, like, you know, things that look redundant, things that look like a, a, a change that wouldn't have any effect, it would just like clean up a little bit of compute extra computation that wasn't necessary could turn out to have really bad consequences. Yeah. Um, and you could be the smartest person in the room and still make a mistake. Yeah. Um, and uh, so uh, Bitcoin is going to humble us whether we make bad decisions or good decisions. Um, and I think as much as it's imperfect, it is imperfect. Um, and as messy as the process is, when you compare it to everything else, it's by far is the best horse we have. I mean, well, you know, it's, sure. It's, it's, no, it's ar the, no argument there. No argument there. It's not perfect, but it's comparatively much closer than anything we possibly have. And it's very not perfect. So it just goes to show how far from perfect we are in, yeah. in the whole stack of things. We just have something that's profoundly better than all alternatives. Um, yeah, I agree so, with that. But you know, like yeah. we're all, I mean, I, I hesitate to say we're all fucking morons because this, the, <laughs> The scope, of, the scope of our <laughs> of our ignorance is far greater than the scope of yeah. our knowledge, right? Forever, mm -hmm. and so this is why I think humility is such a valuable virtue because yeah. it allows you to engage with the known in a way that you minimally disrupt or degrade or destroy the benefits that you've accrued from your knowledge. And, we can't know what we don't know, right? Just, right, some, yeah. and. And yeah. in an environment where we're not sufficiently humble, I mean, this is possibly how things always degrade into into political dynamics because, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. ev everyone's vying to assert their definition of a certain thing. And, you know, mm -hmm. there's an element of, even though, you know, nobody, very few people would like to admit it. I mean, what you've just described is, is a type of politics, right? I mean, it, let's say it's yeah, construed sure. differently than what we're typically used to, but there's an element of that. And I think- you know, who knows how much of that is necessary? I think we're all fairly critical of that, uh, you know, that that sort of structure, let's say, and we'd like to minimize it to the extent possible because we've seen just how much it can be degraded and how how damaging and detrimental that can be. You know, it's it's interesting you bring up um, the uh, Constitution, I guess, um, because. James, you know, I spoke with James O'Byrne from Opvault and uh, we had a, a similar conversation because I wanted to talk to him about, you know, his thoughts on all this stuff. And this goes back to the idea of our definition of this thing, because you have this, you know, founding document, founding protocol. It's kind of as etched in stone as, as anything can be. But then through the course of using it, and implementing it to establish the type of order, the type of relations that you deem valuable and good and desirable, you recognize there's deficiencies. Oh, this wasn't thought of. Oh, the environment has changed and it needs to be some 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 element needs tweaking. And it's in that case where people assess the spirit of the document and say, how do we extract the spirit and recodify something into explicitly? to add to that document. And you see this in, in, in law generally, right? Like how do you, 
you hear this term that people are, you, you try to interpret the spirit of the law, if not the letter, because the spirit is almost more true in a sense. There's there's something more fundamental about the spirit of the law versus the letter. So you can look at a poorly written law and say, that's, that will lead to an implementation of something that's counter to what was meant by that those words. And that's the spirit behind it. And the same is true for how we look at Bitcoin. And you know, again, a lot of people won't like this framing, particularly the, most likely the, the more technical people, but there is a valid question to ask here and say, well, what is the spirit of this thing? Because it's yeah. that understanding that will guide what we make explicit about its impl implementation. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of uh, disagreement, let's say, on what the spirit of this thing is, you know, what it mm -hmm. should be. But again, I think it's an incredibly important question because again, that will determine how valid you deem to be explicit uh, implementations of that or changes to that implementation to be and one one you know uh, current example with the the op fault stuff and I take your point that it's best to like distill things down to as minimally complicated as they can be to derive the benefit from them but mm -hmm. I still look at a, a case like that and I think one there's so many assumptions wrapped up in it oh you know like you said about not everyone can own a UTXO. And so we, we, this needs to be part of that solution. And, you know, custody isn't as good as it should be based on, I don't know whose opinions, but some people's and, you know, <laughs> a bunch of people yeah. aren't going to adopt Bitcoin currently with the, the lack of assurances for custody. So that's another reason. And I look at that and I think one, a lot of assumptions there, none of which may be true Two, to a point you referenced, how do we, know that supra protocol level solutions won't be developed in the course of time on and you know on any of those things three is that not a reflection of our own impatience that we're looking and say oh not enough people own bitcoin yet and not enough people have adopted bitcoin yet no if only bitcoin was different they probably would have uh that's a huge assumption and i think an incorrect one and four you know in considering all those things it seems to me that the more and and considering that we have these unknown, unknown risks forever as part of our engagement with this thing, should we not wait until there's explicit and significant demand for a given change before we even discuss developing a solution for it? Because then like, and, and of course, you know, people tend to, uh, get hung up on this or use it as part of the argument. Obviously in the realm of like fixes that need to be made to Bitcoin because there's a, a bug of some kind, we're, we're not talking about that stuff, right? There's always, you're always gonna need maintenance, of course. Um, but in the realm of like nice to haves, why would we subject ourselves ourselves to the dangers of so many of those assumptions and so many of those unknown, unknown risks in advance of knowing if we are those assumptions are even correct and the only way we can really know those assumptions are correct is if we're brought to the edge of that problem so we maybe a point comes in the future maybe it's 10 years from now and we say holy shit everyone wants bitcoin everyone wants to self custody bitcoin and not everyone in the world can have a have their own utxo mm -hmm. and you know again i suspect in that course of time i wouldn't i shouldn't say i suspect i wouldn't be surprised if solutions were developed in the market to accommodate that but maybe maybe i'm wrong 
But my point is, I want like it seems to me the way to mitigate the assumption the uh, the risk of unknown unknowns and the risks of of changes and everything we've been discussing is to wait until it's abundantly clear that some form of change or upgrade is absolutely necessary to mm-hmm. well to what again that's part of the question like to to service the existing demand what if that demand is is transient you know so that, again there's there's so many little little questions that can, that need to be asked in in developing a, a proper logic about this stuff and i think it's you know my own personal opinion i guess it's time is probably clear at this point but i i think it's inviting unnecessary risk for an unknown gain or an assumption of gain or benefit too early when we just kind of dream up and say, oh, it should be this way. We should have that and that. And again, this comes back to that, what is the spirit or soul of Bitcoin that we're attempting to implement and steward? And maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, some people obviously think we've reached it and now it's just a matter of stewarding it forward. And if everyone can, could access Bitcoin the way you and I do today with self-custody, the lightning network, then maybe, you know, Bob's your uncle and we're good. But then maybe a hundred years from now, there's, you know, something comes up, the circumstance change, the environment is different. The technological landscape is different, which we know it's going to be, you know, with AI Mm -hmm. and hardware developments and all this kind of stuff. So why not just always kind of be right at the precipice of the necessary rather than being, in my opinion, somewhat hubristic and saying, Oh no, I know that we're going to need to do it and we're going to need to do it soon. And it's going to have to be on the base layer and the market won't be able to come up with a solution. And all those assumptions that go into, uh, you know, presenting a change in advance of it being, let's say a necessity. I know that was kind of long-winded, but I think you get my point sufficiently. So I'll I'll throw it back to you. I'll start with where that whole thing started and then ended is the whole idea between the spirit of the law and the letter of the law Mm -hmm. is there are certainly people who think that like, no, it's the letter of the law, but I, I would challenge them such that like in the letter of the law of the original Bitcoin client is there was a buffer overflow bug bug that allowed somebody to create like a hundred billion Bitcoin in a transaction or a block. I think it was, it was a minor. I'm not mistaken. Um, That was the letter of the law that was within the letter of the law of Bitcoin by what designate like how, how could Satoshi know when that bug was corrected that that was not right that, that that was a violation like it was the spirit of what Bitcoin meant it was the intent of the Bitcoin code not the actual Bitcoin code there wasn't a single node on the network it was actually saying that 100 billion Bitcoin didn't exist it was the intent of the creation of Bitcoin that undid and corrected that. So, but they are also not independent. Like you can't just arbitrarily change the intent and then change Bitcoin. It's a little bit like prices, is that prices are both an output and an input of the economic system. So as soon as there is a change in the price, the, you know, when something goes from $10 to $20, well, then it immediately alters everybody's assessment of that in relation to everything else. And it becomes a powerful, the output becomes a powerful input. So there's nothing static about it. Mm -hmm. Like the, the it's, there's not a chicken in the egg. Circular feedback all the way up and down. Both of them affect each other. It's a process that's never ending. 
-hmm. very similar to the spirit and the letter of the law. It's just that both the spirit of Bitcoin is extremely concrete because of a handful of very clear things that Bitcoin was attempting to correct and the things that the problems that it explicitly solves and the means by which it does so, but then also the incredible concreteness of the rules of Bitcoin. So it's a feedback loop. Again, we get more conservative as Bitcoin stays immutable, et cetera. Like, like the fact that Bitcoin is hard to change makes it hard to change the spirit. And then the spirit makes it hard to change Bitcoin. Um, so again, it's a process. It's a process of feedback of us interacting with this system. Um, and it changes us as much as we change it or probably more so um, because it's harder to change a million people than it is to change one person. And individually, we are all one person up against the million people that are the idea of Bitcoin. Um, and uh, and as that grows, it gets even harder. So the force to change the individual becomes greater and greater rather than the force to change the, the reverse to change Bitcoin, I think. Um, so. In that sense, there is no real distinction between the two because they are each other in a way. Um, but do you but think they're they equal? reinforce? No, no, no. I don't think I don't think they're equal. I think they just reinforce and play off of each other. Right. Um, I the, think it's the spirit or the idea more fundamental. Am I oh right? In God, I don't know. Um, what is more fundamental? Because. Well, I, I guess it me... would be. I guess it would actually depend on the size of the network, technically, because you know, if there's one person running one node, then it's all spirit. You know, like like you can you can just arbitrarily change it. Like so, it's it's kind of a growth and maturity of Bitcoin the system versus Bitcoin the individual piece of software on an individual computer. So, but all those individuals how we interact are, with the network choosing to run that software because they're animated by the validity of the ideas contained in the spirit. Sure, but they're also uh, economically tied to the decisions of everyone else. So if the spirit is maintained kind of in a collective sense, the it makes it harder for the individual. Like I could go make my own Bcash cash today, mm -hmm. but and my spirit could change, but the hell if it's going to do anything to Bitcoin, right? Yeah. Well, um, this is where we get into I am, in interesting yeah, yeah, discussion yeah. If, about if, truth if i am satoshi what? and i have the only node then i can make bitcoin whatever the hell i want it to be and nobody's nobody's pushing back against me um right so. but that's also just to interrupt for example that's one of that's the brilliance of satoshi in in his epiphanies revelation however you want to call them bringing together ideas principles values a spirit collectively mm -hmm. that has such a strong resonance with so many people like these are the attributes that this system should erect and implement the technical details to follow later but these are the 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 constituents of fairness these are the ideals truth yeah exactly the, yeah. these are the ideals and so it speaks to just how powerful things like truth are and the, the other ideals that we might identify within bitcoin that mm -hmm. it is not only does it draw so many people in but it keeps so many people in and it and it as a result of that you know and there's other reasons because it was the first and the network effect and stuff but i think all that is subordinate to what we're discussing ends up building out this network of all these people you know tacitly or explicitly agreeing to the ideals that are contained in bitcoin and wanting to participate in something like that and then that generating you know kind of that 
the the benefit of that economically per individual and the strength of the network becomes manifest, becomes expressed mm-hmm. as as a result of those things. And again, if we want to go back to the example of the Constitution, there's a very similar thing going on there. Um, you know, the founding fathers when they brought together their own ideals, and then you can ask, well, from where did they come? You know, where did their own ideas about these things come? Well, many of them were derived religiously from, you know, their religious backgrounds and the ideals contained in that system and that spirit. And again, I think this is also why a lot of these things ultimately track back to domains of the highest values or ideals, because that's what we pull down to imbue into so many of the things that we build in the manifest or intersubjective world. But simply to say that it's because of the strength of the ideals that they identified that they were able to articulate a document that had such force because when people read it, they were like, yes, those ideals are true and good and beautiful and the things that, you know, more fundamental than anything else. And we want to associate with that. We want to participate in that. We want to effectively predicate our lives on that. And then moving forward from that, the the negotiation, the ongoing negotiation is what elements of, of that spirit, you know, all those ideals taken together were, could be articulated better, right? How should we implement that spirit even more when the need yeah. arises, when the, 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 the nature and of how- our environment that we're contending with, when that changes such that we, we need greater clarity on how to implement that spirit. So it's very yeah, similar and- things going on in both domains, in my opinion. And I would say it's also it's kind of a way like how do we expand the spirit of the or those values to to guide us in other activities to right. to expand what we can do and how can we lean on this more to be kind of the foundation of our values but you've got a really good point in that the spirit has to be real like it has to be aligned like i think there are values and principles that align that harmonize with prosperity in life and then values and principles that are incredibly destructive and are very negative that, that, that clash with life and prosperity um, in a really serious way. And if the Constitution did not align, did not harmonize with human prosperity, it would have failed very, very quickly. You know, like if it was if they were socialist ideals, if it was a right. communist manifesto, it would have lasted, you know, a couple of decades before it just imploded into disaster and massacre and, uh, you know, a human genocide that we look back on and be like, oh, I can't believe people were that stupid as we do it all over again. Um, but so in that sense, I think what Bitcoin is, is a codification of as strong of a foundation and as strong of a set of principles and essentially property rights of like you own yourself. As long as you can keep this secret, you own this piece of the economic system. And this is in harmony with human prosperity, with with prosperity among human civilization, um, like us to organize as uh, as a collective by never sacrificing the right of the individual, because because that is the health of the collective. The, the collective is not a thing, right? It's just an abstraction of each of us individually. It's just it's just an aggregate. So as soon as you start sacrificing the rights or the the health of an individual for the collective, all you've done is sacrificed. It's like killing cells to save the organism, but you can't you can't actually define the organism. You've just destroyed the mechanism that makes a cell stay healthy. 
like like that defines a cell separately from it. Like an, the organism is just an abstraction. So if if you take away the rights of the individual, you just end up rotting the core of what makes society function in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, because we are, it's just individuals. It's just individuals. That's why when I what I said in uh, uh, Guys Take yesterday actually was the reason why I think the way out of this. Uh, way out of all of this mess is for us to localize is because there is no way to secure a community like to make a community robust outside of making individuals robust against the community like if all of us have a 10 percent buffer from the liability of our neighbor you know if we have a fire break from the forest or whatever like each of us individually can just Bring, bring back in and secure our situation and our family and what we are doing locally at home and having Bitcoin to protect us from a financial collapse and having a, another source of food to protect us from supply chain collapse and having a source of energy protect protect us from grid collapse. That's what makes the food supply chain secure. That's what makes the collective grid secure. That's what saves all of us. It creates a healthy organism as you know collective humanity by keeping by securing all of the individuals like that is how you get out of this the reason we are in this is because we're all interdependent we're all deeply deeply subject to the failures of our neighbor if we protect ourselves from the failure of our neighbor we protect the collective against the failure of any individual or institution in the mix um so it is the individual it's, it's why we all need to hyper localize because that's how we save the system it's how we save everybody um mm -hmm. is save ourselves uh, and Bitcoin is kind of a manifestation of that alignment, of that that harmonizing with that reality, because the more we deal in abstractions, the more we forget that that's the fundamental truth. And there, there is nothing else. It is just individuals like the government doesn't exist. It's literally just a belief system. It's an idea that some person has a special set of rules and that I have to listen to their authority like the buildings aren't any different. Like the the, the government isn't like an actual building. It's just like a just a big house you know it's just like a different set of people but it could just as easily be your next door neighbor it's not it's not real it is literally a religion it's just a belief system that there are certain people who can do things and i'm not allowed to be mad at them i'm not allowed to do anything and because all of us individually believe this they get away with murder because it, it's a it's a religious belief in authority but that's all it is that's all it is. It's a belief. None of it actually exists. It's the same bricks that are in your neighbor's house. It's the same people that run your HOA. Nothing special. Um, nothing special except what we think of it, how we think of it and how we relate to it. And ultimately, when nobody in your neighborhood is going to get up and stand in the way when you know 20 people come with guns and say that you're going to be put in a cage or we're going to kill you, if they don't and you can't protect yourself from that, well, then that belief has real outcome. Mm -hmm. You know, like, like that belief means that certain people die and certain people get in cages, whether it's right or wrong. Right. Anyway, um, and so like in that sense, Bitcoin is the codification of a set of principles and beliefs where 20 people can't get together and violate it. You know, like it's it, it's a it's a structure and a feedback mechanism that allows us to individually create a collective defense um and the obviously again going back to like it's all imperfect it's all feed 
it feeds back on itself and it changes us and we change it and all of this stuff. But I think there is something in that, that to use it as an information network, to use it as a, a monetary and economic network, it's like the constitution with economic game theory and being able to run a node, you know, like it's, mm -hmm. it is an order of magnitude improvement over trying to instantiate the same ideas. Um, but the question is, does that spirit align and harmonize with the reality of ma maintaining a society? And I think it absolutely does. And I think the fact that our current system doesn't is pretty self-evident in the fact that it's in the process of collapsing. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I think it in, so, in 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 terms of how we've been discussing this in relation to upgrades, I guess, and you you kind of yeah, touched yeah, on so. this before about yeah. the kind of the feedback between them. It's like, to what extent do the changes we make truly represent that generative spirit? Because you know yeah. what you're mentioning, I, I all all the stuff you're saying, I totally agree with. But it's it's a more profound point that most people, I think, tend to appreciate. You're using a word like harmonize, right? And basically mm -hmm. what you're saying is, it's like holding certain ideas or beliefs as truthful is more generative to cooperation, flourishing, development, innovation, prosperity, peace, lack of violence than others are. And, mm -hmm. you know, so the, it begs the question, well, what are you harmonizing with? Why is it that in this reality we find ourselves in certain ideas are more productive toward broadly the good, if we can construe all those things I just said as being kind of fall under the umbrella of good and yeah. helps one avoid, you know, the more hellish scenario. And again, this is why I think, you know, much of what religion says has a lot of validity because they kind of, they extend all these ideas as deeply as you can in the archetypal and metaphorical realm. And I, and this is why I think Bitcoin be ultimately becomes or has become so meaningful to so many people, because what we're basically asserting is that it's an instantiation of those ideas, beliefs, values, principles that are Philosophy. somehow in a way that we don't understand are help us to most harmonize with both one another and the natural world or natural environment that we find ourselves in. Do we not, do we not have to assert some sort of specialness to those ideas and principles if that is the result because ultimately like you and i are i, mean, made I up think of, so yeah yeah you and i are made up of yeah. water minerals you know to mm -hmm. be you know space dust effectively that coalesced over billions of years with the capacity to have these ideas and hold these principles and beliefs and somehow if we do so properly we seem to harmonize best with what allows for flourishing, again, broadly speaking. And so th th this is why I think this is a deeply so-called religious issue, if we can remove the institutional baggage and just keep the ideas. Think about it from an individual's perspective. Yeah, yeah. It's deeply religious because we're, we're basically asserting that we're, we're triangulating or zeroing mm -hmm. in and holding and implementing a set of beliefs that are the most fundamental in terms of how we are, in terms of how we, how our perception is constituted and how our collective perceptions when taken together manifest in the world we experience, i.e. in culture, markets, you know, life. What are the most, what are the most fundamental principles that enable us to cooperate amongst one another rather than be in conflict? 
Yeah. Like, and, like and so it, there's it's, a- it's how do we narrow that down to the most critical pieces and how do we instantiate that into a system that defends and makes it insanely hard to change that such that we are necessarily still going to be ignorant and we might get like a little piece of something wrong, but how, how do we make it so that it's easy to correct without while being very, very difficult to destroy, yeah. to, to get it wrong? And, um, and this is why and, so many people hold it as sacred, much as many people might not want to admit. But, you know, if you look at our ac- actions collectively as hardcore Bitcoiners, <laughs> we hold it as sacred. Yeah. And I, I think that's yeah. a big part of the reason why. And the, the risk or the trouble is, and again, we can look to religious narrative for guidance or wisdom at a minimum in this case, is how do we keep ourselves from allowing our arrogance, hubris, ego, aspirations, bias, all that kind of stuff to moving away from the spirit of those principles that actually allowed, you know, that, that allowed us to feel that sacredness in the first place and avail of its benefits, you know, kind of how do we avoid building a tower of Babel as it were. Uh, And, and this is the, the crux of the question that I, you know, wanted to bring to you today is, and, and by the way, I mean, I know I sound a little bit on the don't fuck if it ain't broke don't fix it sort of uh end of the spectrum but yeah. I, I i i generally don't know i don't know mm-hmm. if what's currently being proposed is a dilution of the spirit of bitcoin that we have found so well harmonized with both our own consciousness and something grander about the collective world and how we interface with reality um i don't know if that's the case but i think that mm-hmm. is the critical question is is our mm-hmm. intended implementations changes to this system bringing us closer in alignment to what we might call the spirit you know all those ide- those those ideals and principles taken together closer a closer or, or more vigorous harmonization let's say or away from it or a lesser harmonization and yeah. i think you know i don't know but i think that's that's the question i think the the simple and very unsatisfying answer is there's there's no answer. There's no way. <laughs> like it's no. A, you're you're saying like what color is the gray area? And it's like, well, is it black or white? You know, it's like, well, it's the gray area. I don't know. I don't think um, we should give up on it so easily. No, I, I think- no, I, I don't. I, I don't mean that I'm giving up on it. I, I think it's a constant. Uh, it's a constant discovery. It's a it's a process of human values, and, and I think human values are real you know like like the the you think about like what is common among all the major religion religions that have lasted for thousands of years if you break that down to core arguments as human values is those clearly align in such a way that they survive for thousands of years right. um their outcomes so there's an element of truth there there is an element of truth to them and where we embrace the wrong thing it's it's our job as thinking individuals and as as evolutionary idea machines um to to realize which ones led us astray and which ones brought us together mm-hmm. um and so it's it's a never ending battle and i think we're kind of it's something what bitcoin has done is it's created a new realm of a new plateau where we are in a different realm of trying to figure that problem out. We, we've we've made something concrete so that we're kind of another layer up. Whereas kind of like 
religion was one of those things for society in general, right? Religion and language. Right. Like right. it's a new realm of like, okay, how do we, now we can evolve ideas in a very different way. And we have this kind of foundation and tradition to go back to when shit hits the fan. Which is um, why I was defended and, so vigorously, you know? And yeah, again, you can yeah. criticize all the different manifestations of that, but that's why, because <clears throat> it was so mm -hmm. much part of the, you know, about how you harmonize, how you establish that mm -hmm. flourishing, you know, and of course it, you know, goes off the rails in, in, in different ways. And maybe there are, <laughs> are things we can learn about Bitcoin by analyzing how that otherwise unifying and, and flourishing sort of force was mistreated or mishandled or diluted in certain ways and ended up having the reverse effect of what it had had and what it in, was intended to have. Mm -hmm. And I think it lends itself to the argument that it should be that the weight, the weight of evaluating things that really expand what you can do versus solely and explicitly constrict. Now, technically, all soft forks are all constrictions of the consensus rules, right? But the idea that the, the limit on transaction size, because we change the signature type, like with Taproot, and the 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 signature tree could essentially be infinitely large. I think we should any change to that, regardless of whether or not is a soft fork, should be much more viciously evaluated. Like like I, I think our our values around that idea of like really just like kind of open like broadly expanding some of the things that you can do within some area might be might not be as good of an idea as we originally thought, even if it is inside the consensus rules. There, right. there are a lot of externalities that we can't quite foresee because we are explicitly trying to expand capabilities. Whereas, and that's why I think it's good that we're narrowing down with something like OpVault, because OpVault is, Op Vault is explicitly a just an, an additional restriction. It's just like very concrete. And I think the more concrete it is, and the the smaller the potential attack vector and the more like there's just like three outcomes and you can assess them mathematically, you know, um, like uh, there's that's where I think the values kind of feedback on themselves is that like as we make a mistake and we we play in this gray area and then we have like a not so good consequence from it, like, OK, well, this is where we went wrong. This is where we were out of line with what was going to take us into a future where we did know or or we did feel that there were no not as many negative externalities or not as many different ways as where this could go improper or cause create incredible costs for us and keep us in cooperation um uh, rather than in conflict with each other like that's the ultimate goal right is how do we how do we ubiquitize cooperation and make it the the lowest barrier possible where we increase the barrier to conflict, increase the barrier to challenging or, or uh, not challenging, but uh, to being at odds with each other. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I mean, you even see that like it's so crazy. The the level of cultural shift that happens is that like, like you used to like everybody used to be super guarded about it. Like Joe, I was listening to the episode with Joe Rogan and uh, Bert Kreischer. What's his face? I can't remember. Uh, Brett? Whatever. Um, yeah. But they were just talking about like the old comedy space is how like jealously guarded it was. And like you didn't want other people to succeed. But then 
Like you look at like when you actually align incentives like Bitcoin, like if I have a Bitcoin business, it's really good for someone else building Bitcoin things to succeed because, because we're aligned. Like if anybody that increases the value of the network of Bitcoin and makes the economy more productive, the deflationary value of that economic unit of Bitcoin benefits me. And in fact, there was a, oh, what episode was this where I was listening to? I don't even remember what I was listening to. It was so good though. I love this framing is somebody asked, somebody was explaining to a group of people like what Bitcoin is and why sound money is good and like all of these things. And someone asked them, it might've been Saifedean or something, but somebody asked them, uh, okay, so what's the downside? Like, like everything that you say here sounds great. You know, what's the great negative of Bitcoin? And they thought about it for a second and they said, the, the worst thing about Bitcoin is that you can't prevent the person you hate most from using and benefiting from it. And even worse is that their use of it benefits you. That it forces us to cooperate with the people that we literally could hate more than anyone else. It is genuinely money for enemies. And like that is that like fundamental cooperation over conflict mechanism of the network. Um, and that that changes those values. And when we're talking about like, we do not want to sacrifice that because how much better is a world where our subjective differences painfully and angrily help each other, you know, as opposed to become some excuse for political conflict or war or forcing one person to pay for a thing over another. Like the the preciousness of being able to solve that problem for society is paramount mm -hmm. um, because we have we have a never ending array of bullshit, stupid, petty reasons to dislike each other and hate each other and want to hurt each other. If we have a means to mitigate those things and to align where we would otherwise not be, um, it needs to be treated with the utmost careful hands, you, you know, uh, the utmost uh, carefulness or uh, conservativeness. A hundred percent. I couldn't agree yeah. more. And, and hence my quest to develop a framework or perspective that is capable of making those types of assessments. Because again, th this whole conversation has been kind of about elucidating, like in what manner should we be thinking about this thing? What it is yeah. what, and what we want it to be and how to go about bringing the two of those things together. And there's a lot of questions wrapped up in actually both of those before you even attempt to bring them together. And that's yeah. you know the, yeah. the genesis of this conversation. And and that's the the quest to find a better framework for understanding all the component parts there. And because to your point just now, it is so important that it, it persists that, you know, there, there's, I can't think of a greater benefit to humanity that it persists. Therefore the importance in these conversations. And again, my, my critique that the conversations seem to be far more in the, how to implement technically rather than, you know, the, the justification of the validity for certain ideas. You know, it's kind of like ideas pop up and it's like, well, they get built technically. And then there's a discussion like, should we implement it? And so there's an, there's an inkling of, it is, is it even something that we want to have in there in the first place? But it, I guess it, 
it's a little bit too rapid for me or or there, there's a there's aspects of it that are skipped over but i think we've and I, this has been helpful for me because I, I there's some things that i you know we we discussed today that um are going to i need to chew on a bit to see how they influence <laughs> how i define bitcoin and how i you know how i my own perspective on those sorts of things but let's just to bring it home and again this is I like James a lot. I consider him a friend. I'm not trying to, you know, um, <laughs> discredit his work or anything like that. But yeah, let, yeah, let's yeah. let's apply this framework to, you know, something like Opvault. Which assumptions are being made about its necessity, about its utility? To what degree is this solution born out of an impatience about adoption, about assumptions about future adoption? Mm -hmm. Um you know, because again, of course, I take your point that the more you distill it down, the, the the more you mitigate those unknown, unknown risks. You can never eliminate them because change itself might be a risk no matter how sound, you know, the mm -hmm. actual implementation is. But I'll throw it over to you um, in, in context of all these, you know, these elements of this discussion that we've touched on and, you know, the, the few that I just threw at you there. Why do you... Because I, I, if I'm hearing you correctly, I, I feel like you're you're kind of in support of of this particular upgrade. Why is that Roughly, yeah. the case? Conceptually, not necessarily implementation wise. Like, like I don't I don't have the ability to properly assess the technicals of it at the moment, and the idea of any soft fork, like if it was already there, like I think it would be a great thing, you know. But the implementation of it is the vulnerability. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Rob Hamilton actually, uh, what was his own, what Bitcoin did maybe. I'm, I'm going to have Rob on the show just because he showed me like the little mini script thing that he's working on, which is really cool. Um, but uh, I, I think he used the analogy of uh, like the, you know, the mothership has the, the alien mothership has the force field around it. And it's when the door opens that they're vulnerable. And like soft fork is kind of like opening up the door. Right. Like right. It, it's it that the very act of that is danger um or is dangerous um but uh because it's putting consensus in this gray area uh where that's the ultimate mechanism itself um but uh so in the context of opvault i am loosely in support because it's an ancient idea in bitcoin like like commitments the like this it's one implementation that is trying to narrow down again and again and and there is a you're right that you know should we be changing something and if there's not a present problem you know like like we're not we're not hitting like some critical issue right this moment we don't have all of these people using trying to use opvault or using some alternative to it it is very subpar and has like vulnerabilities that would need us to implement opvault but there is a degree of you know, some things that when the problem arises, there's no fixing it when it arises. You, you know, like like the 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 onset of the problem itself is kind of a like that's that's kind of the that's why pain is the best teacher, issues. right? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. So there there is like for instance, like lightning. We built lightning way before we needed it. You know, um, and we had a soft fork to solve a potential problem of lightning and even now technically like we're using lightning because it's really great and it in it makes the the ux 
of Bitcoin way better to just be able to zap back and forth. But it's not like we need to be zapping each other retardedly on Noster all, like all day, every day. Um, like I could just be doing on-chain Bitcoin transactions and they're still mostly pretty cheap and they just work. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be thinking about the potential problem and that it's necessarily a bad thing to make changes anticipating it, even though we're not 100% sure that the problem will look exactly like we think it will look like. Um, That's a valid so, point. I, I would say then you get into territory like, what is the... But that's where the scope of... The scope of the benefit. Well, that, but, but it's yeah. also the scope of the benefit. Like for you to implement yeah. stre streaming money into the world is mm -hmm. presumably a pretty big benefit, you know, the capacity yeah. for something like that. And so that's where you have and to- are people you know, really going to use Vault the way we would suspect that they were going to use it? And and is that use case? I mean, like, you know, maybe custodians like and lawyers and insurance and uh, um, uh, estate planning people say they would use it or, or they would want this sort of mechanism. But really, are they? Mm -hmm. You know, like we don't legitimately know, but um, but I think it's a- I think it's kind of a low-hanging fruit thing is that commitments, if you look at, you can look at Bitcoin's history and see the problem that Luke Dasher got hacked and there was nothing that Luke could do. You know, like, like it's, there's it is a few is, examples of that though. No, I mean, relatively speaking, I mean, you're not hearing sob stories on Twitter every day, phishing attacks, you know, perhaps, oh, but oh, oh, oops, I just kicked my thing. Um, and a man, do, I would also, say, I would say note, that's wish not entirely about, the case. Sorry, side note, what? I'm I, I just, I don't know if Luke has come out and said more about the details of what went on with him, but <clears> it should be, it, yeah, it would be helpful because I don't think anyone really I would knows like a, everything. I that, would really like a po detailed postmortem. Yeah, would, exactly. That would be pretty great. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and I think it'd be really healthy uh, to go over that. Um, but it seems like, it seems like he went way too manual and I mean, actually, I won't say anything about it because I don't really know the, the ins and outs of I'm kind of making assumptions from what other people have said. So regardless, we'll go back to the other thing. Um, but uh, I, I don't think Luke is just the one piece of that. I think all the exchange hacks that the I mean, I mean, like multiple every single year, like many people losing coins losing like i mean i think it's like 30 percent or something like that of the known coins on the network right now are inaccessible um like it's a ridiculous sum i think we do have it's like four million coins or something like that um of course the, obviously that estimate changes too but um uh i think backups of ownership and the idea of treating because we now have this kind of hot wallet lightning ecosystem where we where we realize there are certain portions of our funds that we want accessible we want incredibly fast we want incredibly cheap on this payment network and then we have this like hardcore cold storage like doesn't move singular ownership i think it makes sense to have a even harder core like time locked cascading ownership backup plan like i think it makes sense because bitcoin's ultimate value is that ownership that ownership guarantee and that cold storage model and it has gone so wrong because it is a single point of failure. You know, if you don't have your key, you're screwed. Um, that when you're talking about a market, 
sharing that. And like really maybe multi-sig is all we really need for that. And maybe mini script like solves all those problems. But I think op vault is a measurable improvement to a problem that exists right now. And and I don't think it's a a real projection of like, oh, we're going to need it in the future. I think the idea of commitments is something that we can use now and could apply. The question is, will people use it? Will people really know how to interact with it? Or will they do the kind of simpler thing of just like splitting up keys and having a lawyer and a key and doing a time lock? It might be easier to do with something like Miniscript and, you know, what Rob Hamilton is building in his little like visualizer with layers and cascading time locks and all that stuff um, that maybe you don't need something like that. But I think that's a legitimate discussion and a legitimate problem and a potential legitimate solution to it. Like, I think there's a, a real scope of like cost that can be measured that had this been a used thing, we could have saved a lot of pain. Um, and we could um, essentially have clearly consensus rule defined ownership about who can access this and to what degree. And then we can hold you know, there's a degree that like it's really hard to hold exchanges accountable for saying, oh, my key got hacked and then somebody just wiped them out for a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin. Well, if that happens and you have something like Op Vault, it's like, well, why didn't you have a 30 day backup plan? You know, like you can say, like, you can mitigate this. We do have the tools to do that. Um, so I, I, I don't that doesn't have me coming down very hard on either direction to be yeah. perfectly honest, like it's a very ambiguous answer, but I just think it's not so uh, clear that there isn't a use case or that we're trying to project, oh, it could be valuable in three years. I think it is actually something that could be very valuable now and could have been valuable in the past um, and adds a layer of uh, uh, safety or a new layer of backup plan in the case of large like really large funds and when we're talking about governments and like major institutions and stuff getting into bitcoin is that's what you want you want fail safes you want backup plans you you want as complex of a setup as, as simple and complex at the same time so that you're mitigating the central point of failure the risks of any individual party as much as possible mm -hmm. and if there's a very simple very explicit rule that does very one very clear thing that we can add to bitcoin um there's a th there's a strong argument to be made that the trade-off is worth it um but i think that's a different discussion than how do we do a soft fork and how do we implement it it's that's more of a discussion of just is it better for bitcoin to have this or not um but the whole discussion of how do you get it into bitcoin if it's not there already is a whole nightmare in and of itself. How long do you wait? How long do you yeah. get the hell out of this thing on testnet or signet or whatever? Um, and so. I, th I think, um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong on the, on the technical details, but even with this type of architecture, I mean, if the attacker basically has to acquire two pieces of information rather than one, let's say. Yeah. Right. And so you, you always kind of, revert back to the same problem even if there's more hoops to jump through and of course so there's just a different key yeah, yeah exactly yeah. and so it, ultimately it, you know the the way it's implemented is different than something like multi-sig but the mm -hmm. principle is somewhat similar you know there's a time a mm -hmm. time element as well but it's like 
okay, you know, an attacker gets the keys to, you know, an exchange's wallet, let's say. And if, if they don't have something, you know, well, I'll put it this way. If they can do that, how sure are you that they can't do that for your backup key or for, yeah. you know, where you're sending the funds? Because the question is, is where is the vulnerability in the first place? Is it mm -hmm. human vulnerability? Is it technical? Is it whatever? And to what degree are those vulnerabilities, um, you know, shored up or, or fixed by this architecture? or Will we find out that they don't actually address it much? And so, you know, I know they don't I really change that, the dynamic a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I thought this would be a short pod, but we're coming on two and a half hours. And I don't want to let you <laughs> Holy go. Holy crap. Are we? Oh my yeah. God, we are. Wow. So this, this is my, uh, hopefully this is my last two comments, but um, of course I lost my train of thought now, but uh, the, the talking. Okay. The, the first one is, yeah. I think that's why there should be a lot more discussion about the nature of yeah. the problem, the benefit that potentially is to be derived from it, even way before we get into implementation details and all that kind of stuff, but poking holes as much as we can in the logic of the problem. And, you know, be, to the extent we can, we, we always have to, you know, recognize we have that eternal ignorance, but like really flesh out the problem and see if it's, if it's worth moving to the next step in taking risk and opening that proverbial UFO hatch that you were referring to earlier. But mm -hmm. I would also say that I think this is where the rub, like on this particular issue, this is maybe where emphasis should be placed as well in that, you know, we talk about the spirit of Bitcoin, right? And I think one of the ideals that are an aspect of that spirit is ex the exclusive access or ownership of a certain set of information. And the, that's the fundamental um, crux of the property right that Bitcoin provides, which we all talk about all the time as being so unique because information can just be stored in, you know, in your brain, right? And so the, the whole, as far as an individual is concerned, the whole value of Bitcoin is predicated on their exclusive or at least their um, control over access of a certain set of information, full stop. That's, and that is deeply part of the spirit of Bitcoin. And so yeah. to me, as we're having this conversa conversation, the question becomes, to what degree does <clears throat> any proposed solution improve that relationship between an individual and the, and the information that is their relationship to Bitcoin? And obviously, you know, one of the premises of, of something like Opfault is that it does improve it because it gives you a bit of a, you know, a, a gimme, right? It gives you, it gives you a mm -hmm. take back. Like, oh, I fucked up, but you know, I, I, I have a way of rectifying that fuck up, you know, and that's, mm -hmm. there's a utility in that, but is it worthwhile? And is it the right way to address that issue? Which is the, yeah, the exclusive access to a set of information, because that is your entire tether to the system. And that's entirely the value of the system to you. Mm -hmm. So, and I don't have an answer there, but just, I think that's another thing that I'll chew on after this conversation is, is how would we clarify and then find implementations if necessary of answering of, of that aspect of Bitcoin spirit of the, the relationship between the information that makes the whole thing work between an individual yeah. and, and the information that makes the whole thing work. Yeah. And I think it, like there's one thing about Opvault, or actually I'm not sure how, I guess it's like kind of 
the idea of commitments in general is that like the way lightning works is you share pre-signed transactions, you know, so, <clears throat> so you have to have constant interaction with each other and you need a channel to communicate, to, to give information, sign information, give back information. Like there's a lot of handshaking doing uh, like between the devices and the computers, which is one of the significant downsides in a sense is that like there's a lot of orchestration that takes place. Um, and obviously as many years as it took to kind of get lightning to its current position is, um, uh, as you kind of see the costs of that complexity, right? There's, there's a lot of difficulties in getting lightning to work because of that and always online and the, you gotta have a node and all this stuff. So, uh, like the idea of a commitment is that you can essentially do that without a whole lot of handshaking. You can Rather than having to have a pre-signed transaction, you can just sign in a commitment to a output um, and basically save yourself a step and still know you have that guarantee that the Bitcoin will only go to this location if you override it with the previous state. Um, so, and it's like why like commitments help in like channel pools and a lot of these things, why it's been, you know, uh, op CTV was talked about like how you could have payment pools and all of these things and how they, the orchestration of putting those, organizing those things together is actually a whole lot easier and a lot less complicated between like 20 parties, 50 parties than it is between like having, needing to have 50 parties that are all ready to sign like a big giant pool of lightning channels. Um, so there are a lot of other use cases as well for that, but you're immediately, there, there is that question of, is the value of this thing over, uh, like, had we already had this thing, yeah, it would, be, would it be great? But when you have to open up the mothership door, like, I can, I think it's kind of the reverse reason why I don't think there's a whole lot we can do about inscriptions is that inscriptions, I believe, to be a net negative to the monetary integrity and value of the Bitcoin network being able to validate monetary ownership and security and auditing and all of that good stuff because it adds costs that has nothing to do with money. Um, that still is required to secure the money. Um, but the trade-off, the pain of having to undo it or trying to stop people from using it in that way outweighs the negative, uh, the negative right. externality of inscriptions. Mm -hmm. There is a really good argument to be made for the reverse that do commitments or does op vault, sure, it might be a benefit in that regard, but what are the costs to getting that benefit into the system versus the cost of just figuring it out without it? Um, and so, again, I, I don't have, there's no clear answer. It's just, it, it, we've done it. Yeah, we've done soft forks many times and there's arguably many great benefits to some and negatives to others, you know, SegWit is kind of a mixed bag. Like I think there were a lot of benefits to SegWit. Um, and obviously now the longer time goes on, there's some clear costs to that as well. Um, so I don't know that it, it, it's necessarily something that doesn't have a clean answer. Um, and it's our process of kind of beating it to death over and over and over again. And I agree. I agree with you that it, it means that we should, the, discussion should be a lot a lot more uh um conservative a lot, a lot more scrutinized 
Yeah. Like, like our scrutiny should, our scrutiny level should be turned up to max. Um, and broader than a, a and broader and, and rather than a, oh, it's a great feature. Let's have great features. You know, right. Exactly. Um, yeah. Like that's the, that's the shitcoin way. That's the high time preference. And the last thing you want to do is apply high time preference to something that is the ultimate low time preference right. system. Right. Um, because those will be at odds to its success. Yeah. Um, but uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I just want to, it's interesting nonetheless. Yeah. Sure. And I encourage everyone to go check it out themselves, read the white paper and all the common, you know, back and forth that have mm-hmm. been had on it. This podcast is by no means intending to be, you know, in opposition to it or to pass judgment on it. You know, it obviously we use it as a, a, a current thing to flesh out and explain. Just an example the, for the concept. Yeah, the type of yeah. logic we're thinking about. And again, no, you know, nothing against, uh, you know, James and others who've done, who've put together similar proposals that, you know, all the work they put into it. But I do think it's, they're important. Th- this should be an element This the type of logic or rationale that we've been trying to flesh out here today should be part of how people assess such things. And then, mm-hmm. you know, and then everyone contributes to the extent they, they want to in, in whatever dialogue takes place in, in how things unfold. Um, but all that being said, uh, we're two and a half hours in, so I guess I'll let you go this time and I don't, who, who knows, I might have to have you back for, um, an, you know, whatever else is, is bothering me at the moment. So I'll be, but I, I appreciate you uh, giving me all the time. Cause I know I, I took another, I think 30 minutes today and always a, a pleasure to get your thoughts on things and hopefully we can do it again soon. Yeah, man. Always good hanging out, man. I appreciate it a lot. All right, brother. Take care. Let it do. And that will wrap up the marathon with John Vallis on the Bitcoin Rapid Fire podcast. Um, I hope you guys really enjoyed that. And, and I always appreciate, you know, taking an honest and really nuanced view of what's really going on and what Bitcoin is in relation to other things. Because, I mean, he, he talked about it a lot in this thing that it's hard it's such a meaningful thing and it, it, the system itself the design is the instantiation of a set of principles of a of a philosophy and it's hard not to be religious it's not hard to think of it from a philosophical viewpoint and it, it's crazy to think that a piece of software and the network that it's that it establishes is a philosophical thing it is it is a form of it's a system or a network that actually guides the formation of social capital and i mean it in the sense of cooperation of integrity of trust of reputation is how do you establish a baseline to separately establish sovereign individuals such that you can then build social capital on top of it by taking the most critical parts of the philosophy of liberty of of individual liberty and embedding these things into a network through which we then enable each other we we use this network to allow ourselves to cooperate with each other and it really is just kind of a fascinating 
it's an endlessly fascinating thing. I mean, that's how you can make a freaking podcast about this and go for 750 reads and 850, 900 episodes, whatever the hell it is. And like, I can still be fascinated with it for two and a half hours sitting down with John Vallis talking about this stuff. So, um, yeah, it's, it's an incredible thing. And I really, really enjoyed this discussion. So thank you guys for listening especially if you stuck all the way to the end. And uh, don't forget to follow John Vallis. Don't forget to check out the links in the show notes uh, for the other episode that we did, as well as his show and his pub key on Noster. Check out our lovely and amazing sponsors, Swan Bitcoin, CoinKite, and Fold. Not only are these services and products that I have used for I don't even know how long, they're literally like at the center of my Bitcoin life. Um, and uh, I, I highly trust them and I am a huge fan of all the things that they do. But they also support this show and they make Bitcoin Audible possible. And if you use those links and the discount codes, which are good for you, but if you use those, they will know that I sent you over there. And it's a really great way to support the show. So check them out. The links in the show notes discount codes, all the goodies. And I will catch you guys on the next episode of Bitcoin Audible. And until then, everybody, take it easy, guys. Human beings are born with different capacities. If they are free, they are not equal. And if they are equal, they are not free. Alexander Scholzenitsyn This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.